This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome to the program. And happy Just Because Day. Today is Just Because Day. Okay, come on. Like, Things are getting weirder Well, every no, day. because think about it. Let's just say you've always wanted to buy you know, season tickets to an athletic team's games, right? Mm-hmm. But you never can do it. Because in your head, you're like, ah, oh, I shouldn't do it. But today's Just Because Day. Just because, so if you want the tickets, just, just go get the tickets. Yeah, and just you, because. And if your wife's like, why'd you buy the tickets? You say, just because. See, now you're thinking of that. I'm thinking more like flowers. You husband bring host flowers. Why did you do that? Just because. Well, so he thinking, won't be able to afford it, flowers if he buys the tickets. Oh, okay, I was thinking that before the tickets. Yeah, no. Okay. Yeah, buy the tickets. I mean, because you can take your wife. What about to a the car? Game. Today's just because day. Yeah. If you so want to buy you need a car, to go get the car you've been looking at. I've been. You know what? The problem is, I was thinking about it all the way here. I don't. I just. I don't want a car. I don't want to. It's so hard to go make the decision because I love the car I have. <laughs> then keep it. But yeah, if you love it, I know, keep but it. I need a new car because I'm giving my car to my son. Oh, and he's like, "When are you going to get me a I new car?" I thought you car? said he was going to drive your truck. No, my other son's driving that truck. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's crazy. But today's just because day. So if you've needed ever a reason to do something, today's the day. And if somebody asks you why did you do it, hey, just because. Get off my back. Get off my back, man. Who comes up with these? My, yeah, I don't know. Isn't that crazy? It's also Burger Day. But, you know, Burger Day is so obvious. Well, every day's Burger Day. Oh, for sure. <laughs> Burger and Friday. Um, hey, here's the deal. Uh, I'm sure you've heard the news about Allison Parker, the shooting of that wonderful uh, news reporter. Oh, tragic, tragic shooting. And um, here's the deal. I, I really I, – I don't want to talk about her death because her her boyfriend, her fiance, Chris Hurst, made a really, I think, incredibly powerful point. We we shouldn't talk out about any more about how she died. And we we shouldn't even give any more I don't know, airtime to the to the per the person that shot her. Instead, Let's just remember the victims, right? And Chris Hurst, um, we have a clip number eight that I want to play that is Chris Hurst and how – this is her fiancé and how he found out about his girlfriend's death. I found out with frantic phone calls uh, this morning when I uh, returned those phone calls because I was asleep. It happened after uh, around 7 a.m. and I, you know – Normally, my schedule aligns with hers so that I come home after doing the 11 o'clock news. I make her breakfast and pack her a lunch and send her on her day and kiss her goodbye before she goes into her car. And she would always text me. We would always be concerned texting each other when we got to work safely. And she texted me, good night, sweet boy. And that was the last that I had ever heard from her. And then I was startled awake this morning from phone calls from the station telling me that there had been a shooting on live television and I needed to come to the station. 
he he went on to say, "This is startling to be um, because it's a little surreal. Because Alice and I are normally on the other side of the camera." He was telling this to the camera people. He said, I thought that it was important for me as a member of this community and a leader of this station and someone who loved Allison infinitely to come out and share with you her story and her life, one of great promise and exuberance and joy. Anyway, powerful, um, powerful stuff. And I think if we remember the life of, of Allison and these people, there's no explanation for this. We can go turn it political. We can go ask, you know, Donald Trump what he thinks. We could go ask Hillary Clinton what she thinks. And honestly, none of it matters what they think because it doesn't make sense. And I think if there's anything we're going to learn from this as a community is that things just don't make sense. Sometimes things don't make sense. And sometimes things aren't fair. And they just are. That's just what happens. That's just how life happens. And so um, anyway, it's, I think it's, it's, a, it's a horrible experience and, and it's, a, it's an important learning for all of us that you don't have forever with each other. They were engaged. They were excited to save the money to get a ring, to get married and make things happen and done. Not going to happen. So hug the people you're close to. Apologize. Get over yourself. Make amends to those relationships that need to be fixed. Quit hanging on to the grudge. Life is short. If we're not learning that from this crazy story of two beautiful, innocent people whose lives were taken away, then um, we're losing a lot. And so just a little challenge to all of us to to not get caught up in all of the political side of this and not, you know, don't hate. Let's just love the people we're with. Love them more openly. And when you listen to Chris Hurst talk, you can feel that uh, he doesn't have regrets for not having loved her more. Uh, let's now go to the headlines and talk uh, to Kathy Aiken, find out what's going in the, on in the rest of the world. Yeah, as you're talking about, Matt, WDBJ Television in Virginia is trying to move on this morning after two of their colleagues were shot down during a live interview yesterday morning. Vester Lee Flanagan, also known as Bryce Williams, killed reporter Allison Parker and photographer Adam Ward. He also wounded Vicki Gardner, who was being interviewed. Flanagan, who worked at the station and had a history of workplace problems, later killed himself. Parker's boyfriend, Chris Hurst, said they had a, quote, magical nine months together. I just can't believe that she's gone. Allison was a marvelous storyteller with so much promise ahead of her. Allison was the, the brightest light that I have ever met. She was the funniest, kindest, most beautiful woman that I ever met, and she just happened to love me back. Meanwhile, Parker's father, Andy, wants Virginia lawmakers to pass legislation to close loopholes, so he says crazy people don't get guns. You know, I've been, you know, alternating between the shock and the, and the grief. I've been, you know, I'm, I'm holding up, I guess, okay, but I've been crying my eyes out all day long. And, uh, you know, it's gone from, it's gone back and forth. Uh, and, and now it's, you know, it, the anger is, is starting to creep in there because this should not happen. It, it, it shouldn't have happened to someone like Allison. 
Walmart, the world's largest retailer, said it's removing semi-automatic rifles and similar sports firearms from its stores. They say it's not because of yesterday's shooting, but due to low sales. China's key stock market index surged today, the biggest gain in eight weeks. Yesterday, U.S. stocks surged, closing up more than 600 points and posting its third largest point gain ever. This week marks the 10th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. President Obama will travel to New Orleans today to mix some celebration of the city's revival with a call for state and federal lawmakers to prepare their areas for storms due to climate change. The state's governor, Bobby Jindal, however, isn't happy the president is bringing what he calls divisive political agenda of liberal environmental activism with him on the visit. Vice President Joe Biden said yesterday he's not sure if he's going to run and has what he calls emotional fuel for another election campaign. In a conference call with Democratic National Committee members, he said he would only run if his heart and soul were in the race. And right now, he said, both are pretty banged up. Biden lost his son, Beau, to cancer in May. The man who killed 12 people at a movie theater in Colorado three years ago was sentenced yesterday to 12 life sentences plus over 3,000 years in prison. The jury earlier ruled out the death penalty. And Matt, a woman woke up in her Pennsylvania home recently only to find an intruder taking a shower and doing his laundry. What? The woman called police and they arrived at her home near Erie to find 24-year-old Casey James Schaefer. He was arrested on charges of criminal trespass, disorderly conduct, oh, and this is a shocker, goodness. public intoxication. Oh, he was intoxicated. Yeah, yeah can you believe that? Oh, I yeah. can't. That's, That's the weirdest a, That thing. is a shock. I thought he was No word on if he was able to collect the laundry on his way out. We don't know that. Oh, my heavens. Oh. He's, uh, he's hey, like... I'm just going to go in here and do my laundry. He's sitting on the toilet like, uh, can I get some toilet paper? <laughs> We're out of toilet paper. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Are, you know, hey, can criminals. Can you take my laundry? Can you put uh, take it out of the wash and put it in the dryer, yeah. please? Do you have any dryer sheets? <laughs> do your boys? Do your kids do their own laundry? A few, yeah, two yeah. of them. Yeah. Do you ever find that they've left it in the washer a little bit oh, too long? Hey, every day. Yeah. Hello. Hey, what's that mildewy what's that smell? smell? <laughs> do you guys smell mildew? And, and he's he's wearing the clothes that smell like mildew. I'm like, did you not you notice? Have to rewash them. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. You should rewash crazy. that, son. Yeah. What? What? And he's not even intoxicated. Doesn't even <laughs> but have you ever felt like that? He <laughs> doesn't know the smell of mildew. That's the no, problem. No, it's like you do not know that you're wearing mildew? <laughs> what is your problem? Anyway, kids, it's, it's, a, it's a miracle that they live. They survive. Seriously. So true. So Isn't true. it? I mean, sometimes that very story, I'm thinking, that sounds like my kids. <laughs> but they're not drunk. They're just showering and living at our house, and we don't even know who they are. Oh, man. Crazy stuff. Good job, Kathy. Well done on the headlines. Uh, hey, we got a great uh, topic coming up. Um, did you know that the United States spends $711 billion on defense spending? Which, um, if you add up uh, China, Russia, the UK, France, Japan, India, Saudi Arabia, Germany, Brazil, Italy, South Korea, Australia, and Canada... They all together spend $695 billion in their defense spending. And one of the areas where we're spending a lot of the money are on the bases across the world. Did you know we have 800 military bases worldwide in 70 countries? Well, do we need all that? Is it actually making us safer? We'll be speaking with Dr. David Vine, uh, who's going to be talking to us about his book, Base Nation, how the U.S. military bases abroad may harm America and the world. Stick with us, folks. We're talking uh, defense spending up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, the U.S. military has over 800 military bases in more than 70 countries and territories. Recently, many have been questioned, uh, been questioning the necessity of all these bases and their effect worldwide. And it, it, are they really keeping us safer is what people are wondering. Our guest, Dr. David Vine, is the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. He's here to tell us more about the impact these bases are having and their financial burden on the United States. Dr. Vine, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Thank you so much, Matt. It's a pleasure to be with you. You bet. Great to have you. This is – it's a really big issue. I mean because, A, it gets all politically uh, you know, charged. But the U.S. is spending – you know, outspending our – I mean our biggest enemy by, I don't know, seven to one in defense spending, I guess. And um, – and one of the signs of that, I guess, are all of these bases. We have 800 bases or you also call them pads or lily pads, different size you know, establishments all over the country. Why? Why do we need so many bases? Very good question and, and a question that I think hasn't been asked often enough. And that was a big impetus for, for writing this book, Base Nation, and carrying out research over the last six years and – on this book and 14 years in total that I've been studying U.S. military bases overseas. And, and you're exactly right. There are around 800 uh, U.S. military bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C., and it's a big part of, of our hundreds of millions, uh, hundreds of billions, that's billions with a B, right. dollars a year um, military budget. Uh, by my estimate, carried out as part of the research for the book, we spend around $85 billion maintaining bases and, and troops overseas. Um, and that doesn't even count the cost of bases and troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. And if you include those, the total probably reaches around $156 billion. Um, and meanwhile, wow. as, as you pointed out, you know, we spend in total, our military budget annually is almost equal to that of the rest of the world combined. Yeah. Um, China spends vastly less. Um, and if you add in, you know, most of the other top spenders in the world are our allies. Yeah, right. And, and, we're, and we're actually, I mean, we're making money arming them as well, right? I mean, we're providing a lot of the intelligence and the aircrafts that they need and the weaponry that they need. And um, I, I guess when we look at it is – if you, I'm sure if you brought the generals on or whatever, they'd say, well, we're just trying to you know, be able to quickly respond all over the world. And yet, um, what are you finding? What are they saying? What is the purpose for having 800 bases? Well, I'm encouraged, actually, that there are an increasing number of military leaders who are questioning the utility, the value of all these bases overseas, and, and you mentioned it being a politically charged issue, and it is to some extent, but there are actually people across the political spectrum who are asking why we're spending so much on these bases overseas. Are they making us safer? Are they making us more secure? Even Donald Trump last week asked, you know, why are we spending so much defending Germany? Why are we spending so much defending Japan? Right. You know, this is 70 years after the end of World War II, more than two decades after the end of the Cold War. Why? Why? Yeah. Um, and uh, so the, the, if you look at Pentagon leaders, if you look at military officials, there are, of course, some who say we need these bases because they deter enemies, they keep the peace globally. And that, that's been the line for, for decades now, again, going back to the beginning of the Cold War. But rarely has anyone asked 
people who would make those claims to defend them, to provide evidence to suggest that, in fact, these bases uh, are a deterrent and do keep the peace. And, and my research has shown that there basically is very little, if any, evidence that shows that, that bases overseas are an effective deterrent. You mentioned deployment speed, and this is a really critical issue. The Bush administration, Joint Chiefs of Staff, carried out a study, and the RAND Corporation, a government-funded yeah. think tank, carried out a similar study and showed that bases overseas uh, do not provide an advantage when it comes to deployment speed. Any deployment uh, speed advantage, that is, so if you want to deploy U.S. forces from a base, a base in the continental United States or perhaps Hawaii can get you there almost as fast or as fast as a base overseas, given technological advancements in air and sea lift. Um, And any marginal time advantage of a base overseas uh, isn't close to made up for, um, given the tremendous extra costs that are involved in in maintaining bases overseas. They're much more expensive than, than bases in the United States. You, you, in your article, um, in, in this article, you talk about, too, that it's, there's one thing, there's a base, right? But then there's also just kind of smaller, cooperative, you call them, I guess, secure locations, lily pads. And some sites, some of our bases around the world are even unconfirmed. They're not even confirmed as a military site, which I guess are called unconfirmed lily pads. What, so we, we really, we're talking about some bases would be huge, I'm assuming, like you might see in Germany with 20,000 people, a little city or whatever. And some might be a lot smaller with, what, a dozen people? That, that, that's exactly right. There's really a range. And, and, and as we you mentioned, and uh, there are, by my estimate, 800 bases overseas, and they range in size from city-sized bases in Germany and Japan and South Korea and Italy uh, to much smaller bases that sometimes have very few, if, if any, U.S. troops. They might just have some U.S. military contractors, and, but they're designed to be ready to, to welcome uh, deployment of much larger numbers of U.S. troops. Uh, they tend to be stocked with weaponry. Some of these lily pad bases, or they're formally called cooperative security locations, uh, host drones. Um, often they are uh, designed for special forces uh, troops. So you really do see a, a range of, of, of bases and base types. Um, it's important to point out that, that many of these lily pad bases, the cooperative security locations, are located in places where the United States has not previously had a, a military presence. These, this is an increasingly popular form of base. Uh, the bases, the giant bases, are, are becoming less popular because they so often breed a lot of opposition and protest. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're seeing in, in Africa in particular where no government wanted to host a U.S. base that would be the headquarters for the U.S. Africa Command. Uh, these very secretive, undercover, lily pad bases uh, in places like... Uh, Ouagadougou, Burkina Faso, um, in Ethiopia, in hmm. uh, Kenya, uh, and the list goes on. It's, uh, it, 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 it's disturbing because, again, we're not having a conversation about should the U.S. military have what is effectively a permanent military presence almost everywhere in the world, including places like Africa in the midst of conflicts that often we don't know nearly enough about mm-hmm. and that we might be being dragged into. Well, in a weird way, it almost seems like, too, we, we, there are certain places that you can sense there's tension, like Ethiopia. I mean, in a way, it, 
it seems like if we're going to be in there fighting um, pirates and all of that that's going on there, plus every other issue that's going on in in Africa, um, it seems like that might make sense. And then we also have bases in places that maybe we used to have a lot of tension, and um, but we haven't been there forever, and it hasn't been a problem forever. What what do you see? I mean, it seems like it's maybe it's more of just bureaucracy. We open a base and we can never close a base. We just once we've opened it, we just keep it open, even if there's tension in the area about the base. I'm sure most governments, you know, and and neighbors to some of these bases don't always love them. That's exactly right. No, bases of all sizes have generated opposition and protest and both from locals and from neighboring governments uh, and, and, and others. But um, it's, it's, again, important to say that, that uh, I think you, you, you hit the nail on the head, that, that bases, once they're opened, we've seen this consistent pattern that they become very difficult to close. And in fact, they're, they tend to expand yeah. uh, often, often dramatically. There have been some important base closures in Europe, in particular, in the last decade or so. Um, but uh, but we have at the same time seen bases, new bases being built in G- Germany, and bases like those I mentioned yeah, in, in Africa, Africa popping up left and right. Hmm. Does and, and part of the whole premise of your book is that this these aren't just. This isn't just kind of a financial problem. You're saying that the bases abroad actually harm America. The basic premise of the book, exactly, and the basic argument of the book is that these bases, while it's been claimed for years that they're protecting national security, that they're spreading democracy, that they're ensuring global security, uh, are actually harming Americans. They're harming people who live near the bases overseas. Uh, they're harming the world in a, a variety of ways. And and we need to take a very critical look at every single U.S. military base overseas and ask, do we need this base? Can we afford it? Is it, in fact, protecting national security or global security? And should we be closing it? Um, and I, I think Congress needs to be involved in that. I think uh, the, the public needs to be involved in that sort of oversight and, and conversation. You bet. And especially, especially you know, years ago, what, what was it, 10, 15 or 10 years ago or so, there was in Congress this major move to shut down bases in the United States. Do you remember that? And that was a big – that was a battle extraordinaire. It seems like shutting down some bases worldwide might be an easier discussion for Congress. That's exactly right. You know, members of Congress shouldn't have all that many constituents right. in, in Germany or, yeah. or, or Italy. Uh, the, the, the debates in the United States about domestic base closures usually revolve around economic issues. Yeah, right. People are Not in my yard, yeah. Yeah, and people are rightfully uh, worried about base closures uh, because often, you know, people have jobs on bases or their businesses are connected to, to bases. But it's important to point out that the, while there are a range of a very dramatic, often negative consequences, harms that, that come about as a result of our bases overseas and domestically, there's environmental damage or crimes, unfortunately, that are committed by some U.S. military personnel, right. um, but the economics are actually quite complicated. People often worry that the uh, community will be, will be badly damaged by a base closure, but research consistently shows around the world, and this is domestic bases and overseas, that, that the negative economic effects of a base closure are actually relatively slight, and communities that have bases closed tend to 
bounce back relatively quickly and sometimes actually end up better off after a base close, closes because the, the land that is taken up by these bases, often quite massive bases, can be used in other ways that, yeah. that actually can employ more people and be more economically productive. Well, let's um, let's take a break. And I want to – on the other side of the break, I, I really want to get into – you know what are what are some of the options? What what really could we be doing? I just think of an eighty five billion dollar budget. If you cut it by twenty percent, that's a lot of moo. That's a lot of moolah. We could be investing in other things and um, and changing and changing even the image of the United States around the world. Eight hundred military bases worldwide, folks, in seventy countries and territories. We're speaking with Dr. David Vine. Uh, We'll be back. He's the author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Getting some insight into uh, a little bit of the, the, uh, you know, military spending. We'll take a break. We'll be right back. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, when your military is outspending the entire world, basically, um, combined, then, you know, you could probably make some cuts. There's there's just this crazy thing that happens, and it happens in everybody, just in, even in your own family budget. It's It's just, it's like, it's just budget creep, right? It's... Once you're used to having the the milkman deliver the milk, it's easy to just always have the milkman deliver the milk, even when you notice you're throwing out half the milk. It might be smarter to start making some decisions about what do we need today. We may be in history needed 800 military bases all over the world in 70 countries, but maybe it's time to cut back on some of them. Some of them probably are causing more problems for us than than not. Joining us uh, is Dr. David Vine. He's the author of the book Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. He is an associate professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C., and he's here to just open our eyes, I think, a little bit more about uh, what's going on with uh, our military bases around the country. Dr. David Vine, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You bet. And a point you make, though, is that that um, it actually harms America. And we've heard in the news, like, and I can't remember what country it was, but military men go off the base, they commit a crime, they harm somebody in an accident. It creates a lot of bad feelings in the area. Everyone in that area wants the base closed. Is that the type of harm that's that we're we're you know, perpetrating on the world by having our bases out there. Aren't we really just there to help? I, I think it's important to point out that, that the vast majority of U.S. military personnel, of course, do not commit crimes, right. do, not, do not get into accidents, and, and, and very much want to help. Um, and that's important. But, but I think in, in some powerful ways, unfortunately, they're, they're not helping. And it's not because of anything they're doing, it's it's a larger strategic decision that's really an outdated policy that dates to the 
and beginning of the Cold War and, and World War II. Um, but you're exactly right. The, one of the forms of harm that these bases inflict on local communities is that, that unfortunately there are some members of the military who commit crimes in places like Okinawa, in Italy, in Germany, basically anywhere there are bases, this, this, this happens. And it always, I think almost without fail, generates a lot of anger and opposition and people having negative feelings uh, against the United States. It, it becomes even more problematic in a place like uh, the Middle East, where there are, there's a clear correlation between the presence of U.S. bases uh, and U.S. troops and al-Qaeda recruitment. Hmm. Bases serve as a source of radicalization and actually make the world a more dangerous place and, and, and make the United States um, more insecure rather than secure. Um, it makes it more likely that, that Americans, both U.S. military personnel and, and civilians, are going to uh, be, become the target of, of attacks. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the many ways that, that the bases harm not just people overseas, but, but harm us in the United States. And I, I think the other key way in which uh, our bases are, are harming us are, is exactly to what you pointed to, that just the cost of these bases, this is taxpayer money. This is money that could be spent in Utah. Yeah. This is money that could be spent domestically. Our, our domestic infrastructure is crumbling while our overseas base infrastructure is quite robust. These, <laughs> you know, these giant city-sized bases are, are, you know, look like very large colleges. And, and quite well-appointed colleges. Uh, and meanwhile, our schools, our housing, our, our again, transportation and infrastructure needs that money and, and could, could use it in, in a variety of ways. Well, it's interesting because you we, – we could also – you know, we have an embassy in every one of these countries as well, and which, you know, kind of speaks of diplomacy and speaks of um, – kind of the perpetuation of democracy. There's a great source of that. And yet then we have bases which kind of speak of military and control and um, something that's it's kind of, it might be a different message than, than we want to be sending. That's exactly right. And I think most people in the United States, and I, I was one of them until I started studying the issue, don't realize that, that our bases are a major face of the United States. It's a major symbol of the United States for people around the world. And I'm not sure that should be our major face or mm -hmm. our major way of engaging with people around the world. I thought McDonald's I, was the major face <laughs> of America. It, it is one of them. I, th <laughs> yes. I think McDonald's, Hollywood, yeah. music, and, and bases. And bases. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. an embassy in the biggest city in every country. But I, I think embassies are important, and, and, and the argument of the book is not that the United States should close all its bases right. and, and pull back to the United States into some sort of isolationist retreat. Uh, the argument is instead that, again, we need to analyze carefully if, whether every single base overseas is needed, um, whether it is protecting us or anyone in the world in any way. Is a base in Germany, for example, protecting Utah? Uh, and at the same time, find other ways of, of engagement. While we close bases that are unnecessary overseas, we should be boosting our diplomatic presence overseas and our, our efforts to resolve conflicts uh, through diplomacy. And partnering with other countries. And, exactly. I mean, it, it seems like a lot of these countries, you could easily be sharing bases and sharing the costs. And, I mean, the, the idea that... 
every base is necessary, it's just not going to fly. If if we can go, you know, a few years ago and cut back a certain percentage, do you remember what percentage of bases in the United States were cut? It was a, a fairly significant percentage, and uh, according to the Pentagon, there's still more to... percent excess capacity in the United States. So there's there is room, first of all, to, to close some bases domestically as well, yeah. but also to bring troops overseas back to, to bases in, in the United States, uh, where you know their, their salaries could actually improve local economies and, and improve local communities. Well, and honestly, if we can do it in the United States with the, po- with the political situation that that took, we, it seems like we could easily go cut a certain percentage, 20, 30 percent, 40 percent, or at least – and slim down some of them and simplify some of them and um, you know, even reinvest money to create smaller bases but less labor-intensive. I don't know, less cost and resource-intensive. Yeah, we we could do it overnight. Unlike domestic bases, which require a congressionally mandated process for closure, the Pentagon could close bases overnight. And I think it is important to point out that these lily pad bases, these smaller bases, one of the reasons they're appealing is that that they do cost less. Yeah. But it's but but even the smallest of bases tends to arouse opposition sure. and anger. You know, especially if you think about. Some of these lily pads are, are drone bases. Drones have, have actually increased the number of people who would wish to harm the United States because also all too often they've been killing civilians um, and flying overhead. I, you know, I think it's worth thinking about what, what would it feel like to live somewhere where you had U.S. foreign uh, military drones oh. flying overhead, let alone helicopters or right. planes like you see in Okinawa or Italy or Germany. Well, imagine so, having a Chinese base next to your city. I mean, that would be so foreign, so strange. It's inconceivable to yeah. people in the United States, and yet this is what people around the world are living with every day. And again, I think it's worth trying to put ourselves in the shoes of people like those in, in Okinawa or people in Honduras or Djibouti. Um, and, and how would it feel to have a foreign military occupying your soil mm. with tanks and various forms of weaponry and planes and helicopters flying overhead every single day. Uh, your goal really, I guess, is to just begin the discussion, to like surface the issue and say, what are we doing? That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, and I'm, I'm glad to say, again, that there are a growing number of people who are asking similar questions. And of course, my you know research and the book-based nation builds on fantastic research that's been done by, by others over uh, decades. Um, so it, it's not that this question has never been raised before, but it really hasn't had the prominence as a, a major foreign policy debate that it, that it has needed. It's, it's a major facet of our foreign policy, a major facet of the way in which the United States engages with the world. And basically, there's been no conversation about it. Congress has really sort of, you know, uh, Turned the looked away from mm-hmm. from bases overseas and let the Pentagon do what it wishes. Uh, and and when when you do that, you tend to see the kinds of of spending that has run into the billions of dollars every year building these bases and the infrastructure to support them. And we might well, be again our our domestic infrastructure has crumbled in so many ways. Yeah, I mean, that's it. Really, is a great argument. Just. Cutting these, I mean, if you could bring an extra twenty billion back and directly 
introduce it into infrastructure here in the United States, wow. I mean, that's something. And and it could honestly be a lot more than that when you consider that it's about $200 billion if you consider the the war zone bases, right? Those that are in the war zone. I mean, that's a lot of money. Exactly, yeah. The, the, you know, my estimates based on years of research showed that, that including the cost of bases and troops in war zones, at a minimum, we're talking $156 billion, but, it, but it, the total could come to $200 billion a year. Plus 85 and, outside of war zones, right? That's exactly right. So $285 billion, you cut that by 25%. There's a lot of money. It's it's a lot of money. You know, the total would be you know somewhere between 150 and, and 200 hmm. billion. But um, and I, I think you know it's important to point out that that recently we've we've been hearing from Pentagon leaders and military officials that that the budget is you know down to the bone. They're they're you know running the risk of endangering our national security. They have a budget that now is close to the heights of the Cold War's highest budgets. And meanwhile, there is no superpower enemy like there was during the Cold War. There is no Soviet Union that, that was a threat to the United States. The, the military budget is totally out of proportion to the threats facing the United States. And meanwhile, there are very real threats facing us here in the United States, like bridges that are crumbling, roads oh, yeah. that are crumbling, schools that are crumbling. Well, online not, security, right, exactly. That we're not paying attention to. Um, and, and, and the Pentagon budget, I'm, I'm sorry to say, is just out of control. When billions of dollars go lost, go missing in the Pentagon budget, no one even blinks. Yeah. The budget is, you know, we're talking upwards of $600 billion a year, the total budget, and you know, billions of dollars are, are just a rounding error. <laughs> you have a billion-dollar rounding error. It's, and, and again, it, but this gets so political and everyone's like, well, you want to destroy our security? But I guess the reality is we're, we're bloated. Right. We're kind of gassy and bloated. And it's I mean, it's one thing to just it's not it's not an either or proposition. We can secure and and, and create a secure environment and cut budgets. Right. It's not either or. That's exactly right. And that's that's the central argument of the book that that closing overseas bases, it's a bit counterintuitive. You'd think, you know, more bases equals more security. Right. And what what I'm trying to show in the book is that that these bases are actually harming national security and harming the security of people around the world. So that closing them would actually allow us to focus our attention on defending the United States, defending U.S. borders, defending the, the security of people in places like Utah, people places around the, world, around the country, um, defending our security in terms of our educational security, our, our health care, our housing, um, the, the quality of the environment. Um, all of this has been neglected while we've built up this huge infrastructure of bases overseas. Yeah. No, I mean, it's, it seems like a pretty basic common sense argument. And I think the key is people just can't go get entrenched into just their black and white view. They got to just read, read and get the data. The data probably will convince everybody. Just read the facts, right? I hope so. I hope so. And yeah, yeah. That's 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 the aim of of, of base nation to to lay out the facts that that have not been attended to, that have not been examined. Yeah, I think we and we need more of this on every front. 
I mean, if we all just saw how decrepit the infrastructure of our you know, highway system is, this would probably be a no-brainer. Um, well, David Vine, we appreciate you. Dr. David Vine, uh, the author of the book Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Uh, and also he is a professor, associate professor of anthropology at American University in Washington, D.C. Thanks for the insight, Doc. Appreciate it. It truly is um, – it's important, folks. And again, to not get political about it, just look at the numbers. We have 800 bases in places that you really have no threat. You don't even know about where these bases are. And it makes sense. You know, if we have special forces somewhere, it makes sense that you got to protect them and have a special forces base out there, a little lily pad somewhere. I get that. But there's other bases that are costing billions of dollars that the neighbors hate. And you could close. And just like we did in the United States, if we cut the bases in the United States – by uh, as much as we did, we can easily cut the world number of, of military bases. And I'm not advocating doing it. I'm advocating start thinking about it and reinvest that money directly into the infrastructure in the United States. Create better schools. Create better highways. Better systems. It's just an idea, folks. Uh, we're here to learn. That's one of my goals on this show is to give us another view and give us some data, some facts, some interesting facts, interestingly. We'll take a break, my friends. Come back, wrap up this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. We'll be right back right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Um, you know, one of the things uh, that is just so interesting, we have our way of thinking, right? And and we've always, you know, we've always had bases. Why would you even question it? We've always had them. We need every single solitary one. And we, you don't know we do or we don't. None of us have any information, really, about any of these bases. Well, yeah, my uncle lived on one. In Okinawa, great. And he says it was awesome. And they had the best ice cream. Again, all I care about is let's just get some data. Let's get some information in here. But if we don't – again, in the United States, we closed a lot of bases. And do you remember all the hullabaloo, all the junk that was being said about how that was destroying this country? And in reality – we showed that we could do it, and it happened, and it, I'm sure it impacted a lot of lives. I'm not saying it doesn't impact lives. It does, and we survived. But what we need now may not be a huge city base within a country to run our drones out of. We're in a different world, folks. Remember, years ago, we needed airplanes. We needed 100,000 people being able to move and being able to base somewhere. Now we can send drones in. And why I think it's important is we, if we can't talk about it, then we're doomed to stick in this. And if we keep this – just a base mentality alive, 
um, then I guess we just keep going. And if any other country had the same mentality, then you'd have to be okay in a few years with China building a base or Germany. How would you feel about Germany building a base in your town? A base, a military base, and German airplanes are landing in your neighborhood, and German drones are flying around your neighborhood. And then every once in a while, there's an accident with a German truck. And then, hey, if the Germans got one, the Italians will need one. And we probably ought to get Brazil one because they're up and coming. Right? I mean, it's crazy. We'd never have it. But I guess Germany's supposed to be okay with American bases. And, you know, Italy ought to be fine. We're just, we're just love. Just think about it. If we had a Japanese base, people would think that's crazy. Why? Why do they need a base here? So notice, we're the only country doing it. And um, if we're the only country doing it, and especially in a lot of these countries that are pretty safe, and I'm not saying we don't need to have a base. We do. There's certain places we need one. But in Europe, we may not need 20 of them. We may need one mega base. I don't know. It just seems like a business idea. And holy cow, wait till that idea gets in the hands of Donald Trump and he needs to start cutting to find money. Are you kidding me? That's how the wall's going to be built. It's scary. Anyway, folks, if we can't talk about it because it's sacrosanct, then how on earth do we ever move this country forward? You could go get $50 billion to, to invest if you want to. Invest it back in the military if you want to. Okay. But, man, you got to be able to talk about it. That's hour number one of the Matt Townsend Show. We'll take a break. Come back next hour. Next hour, we got a great topic coming up. We're going to be talking about how to raise can-do kids, these kids that can actually solve their own problems. Man, heaven forbid, even put their own shoes on without uh, Velcro. We'll be talking about all of it. Up next on the Matt Townsend Show, stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Top of the morning to you. Man alive, have we got a great show for you. Today we will be talking in just a few minutes with uh, Dr. Richard Rendy, who is the author of a book, co-author of a book, Raising Can-Do Kids. These are the kids that can actually do things. They can, like, tie their shoes. And do their laundry. And do their laundry without it turning <laughs> mildewy. These are the kids, and we're not necessarily doing a great job at this. Uh, a lot of our kids struggle. They get to college, and they still need their mom and dad to come talk to their teacher about their grades. Because we bail them out too much, I think. Way think? too much. Yeah. And it's not helping. These are the can-do kids. And one of the reasons I think I've decided why we have, a, we have trouble raising can-do kids is because we te- we've taught our kids that they can just keep making up words. See, back in the day, there was only so many words. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the Oxford Dictionary had those words. Boom. Those are the words. 
Now our kids are making up new words. So here are some words, 22 more words added to Oxford Dictionary. By the way, these are only added to the online dictionary. And then Oxford will decide, I guess, quarterly if they're going to bring some of these words into the real dictionary, the real one, the one that's like in Oxford, England, (laughs) written by like a 900-year-old man. (laughs) Here are some of the words. Tell me, and I I need you guys to... um, to define them for okay. me, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, awesome sauce. Oh gosh, your this whole personality—you're just awesome sauce. You are, yeah. Are they making slang actual no. words? Now? No, no, no. This That's is an actual. They're trying to make is, it an actual. This word. is a U.S. informal word. Awesome sauce. It means extremely good. Yeah. So, hey, you're awesome sauce, man. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Perfect. You see how hip I did that? Uh, Bants. Bants. Yeah. Is that chiefly British or is that in American It's British English? informal. Okay. Bants. Yeah. I'm not f- familiar Bants. with British slang. How do you slang. spell it? Uh, B-A-N-T-S, oh, also T-A. B-A-N-T-Z. It could go either oh. way. I think it has something to do with some kind of attire. Banter. It has to do with playfully <gasps> teasing or mocking. Like right now, sometimes we bants around here. It's bants. See, everything is becoming shorter. Yeah. You know, you know, you know hear the girls saying probs. Yeah. Like yeah, probably, probs. but probs yeah. or adorbs. Okay, here's, what, here's a crazy one. Brain fart. <laughs> we forgot something. So we forgot something. Yeah. That's one I use all the time. Uh, bruh. Bruh. Brother. Bruh. Bruh. Male, a male friend. Yep. Yeah. Like brother. U.S. informal. Um, butt dial. Pocket dial. Pocket dial. You just oh, yeah. put your phone in and uh-huh. accidentally Sit on it. Phone uh-huh. call. Um, <laughs> some of these are – okay. Fast casual. Fa- fast casual? Fast casual. Do you want to go for fast casual or um, do you just want to go to McDonald's? What the? This is weird. So fast casual. I'm going to Chili's or something. Yeah, it denotes uh, a type of high-quality self-service restaurant offering <laughs> dishes that are prepared to order and more expensive than those available in fast food. Okay. Probably like a Chili's, like a Applebee's, I guess, is fast cash. I feel like I I'm know. pretty up on, on the lingo like in language. Yeah. I don't know. I've never heard that before. Yeah, it's hip. Okay. Fast cash. But it's so interesting to me that all these words are being shortened. It's like we don't have time to say brother. You know why? It's because we're raising can not do kids. (laughs) There you go. This is why they can't do anything. They can't even finish a word. Yeah. You say props. You say probably. Yeah. Or props. Props. Hey, uh, MacGyver. You can do everything. Fix anything. Fix Fix or repair stuff. I'm just MacGyving this. Mm -hmm. No big deal. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Man spreading. (laughs) You know, I saw that, but I didn't dare look it up. I, know, I did. So I did not dare look at what, it's the, so it, what good. the definition uh, was. And it's it's true because you need a word for that. But it's when you sit next to somebody like in public transportation and the, it's a guy, let's say, and he spreads his legs apart, but he spreads his legs into your space. That is so true. You guys do do that. Yeah, that it's, is very It's called man spreading. Isn't oh. that crazy? Okay, mic drop. That's when when someone is really, you know – Prepping the stage for me to come on, yeah, and just MIC drop, drop a rap, MIC drop. Okay, it, so it's when it's the instance M-I-K-E or M-I-C. of deliberately dropping or tossing aside one's microphone at the end of the performance or speech, <laughs> especially if the speech has been particularly impressive. So, like when you've nailed it, you just drop your mic. I love these oh, formal definitions. Some drop. of these I'm really hoping don't get in there. That's, that's crazy. Cool. Well, that's an actual thing, though. You know. I'm okay, here's here's the last one. Uh, so you know there's a mister and you know there's a missus. Mm-hmm. What are you supposed to use when you uh, – hold on. What are you supposed to use when <laughs> you're not wanting to specifically identify someone's gender? 
hey, person. So, like, like, so if you don't know, yeah, if you don't know their gender. And you still want to be formal and polite. Yeah. How about broster? To their brother or And sister? I don't even know how you pronounce it. It's, so it's not Mr. It's not – so it's not Mr. or Mrs. It's Mix. It's MX. I've never heard that. Oh, my goodness. I don't know. Some of these things, like, come on. <laughs> goodness. This is why we need to learn to raise can-do kids because our for kids, sure. just based on this vocabulary, use the words, they are going to be messed up forever. Forever. Uh, anyway, let's go to the master of vocabulary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Kathy Uh-oh. Aiken, find out what's in the headlines. <laughs> U.S. stocks surged yesterday, closing at more than 600 points, its third biggest point gain on record. Stock futures suggested more gains today. China's stocks surged Thursday, the biggest gain in eight weeks. After yesterday's murder of two television colleagues in Virginia, a father of one of the victims is calling for stricter gun laws. Andy Parker, whose daughter Allison was killed, is vowing to force Virginia lawmakers to make buying a gun more difficult for those he calls crazy. I'm for the Second Amendment, but there has to be a way to force politicians that are cowards and in the pockets of the NRA to come to grips and and make sense, have, have sensible laws so that crazy people can't get guns. It can't be that hard. And yet politicians from the local level to the state level, to the, to the national level, they sidestep the issue. They kick the can down the road. This can't happen anymore. Parker's boyfriend, boyfriend Chris Hurst, who also works at the station, spoke out as well. But clearly something went wrong here between him leaving our station and being able to purchase a gun and commit a premeditated act. Fester Lee Flanagan shot and killed reporter Allison Parker as well as cameraman Adam Ward. Flanagan, who was fired from the station in 2013, ran his car off the road and was found with a self-inflicted gunshot wound and later died at a hospital. 51-year-old Louisiana police officer Henry Nelson was shot and killed yesterday while on a domestic violence call. Harrison Lee Wiley allegedly shot the officer after stabbing three women, one of them fatally. The suspect is in custody after barricading himself at a local mini-mart. Joe Biden told the Democratic National Committee yesterday he's not sure he has the emotional fuel to run for the presidency. Biden recently lost his son to cancer. Meanwhile, new polls show Biden faring better than Hillary Clinton against the top GOP contenders. A Quinnipiac University poll released today shows Biden would beat Donald Trump by eight points. Clinton would win by four. The same poll shows Clinton leads on the Democratic side 45 percent, but her lead over Bernie Sanders has slipped by 10 points. On the GOP side, Trump leads at 28 percent, followed by Ben Carson at 12 percent. Jeb Bush, Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio are tied for third with 7 percent of the vote. A massive bread recall is taking place in 11 states after fragments of glass was found on the outside of a loaf of bread recently. The maker of Sara Lee, Nature's Harvest and other brands is recalling bread due to a broken light bulb at the company factory. The breads have best buy dates ranging from August 12th to September 1st. Bimbo Bakeries says, says people can return the bread to the stores for a full refund. And Matt, have you ever been on a subway in New York? You know yes, how I have. It can be hard to find a seat, especially with man's bread. Man's right? <laughs> Absolutely. I don't know if there's such a thing as woman's bread, but I don't that's think what so. happened recently for a 45-year-old woman. So she asked another woman who had put some of her belongings on a seat next to her to kindly remove them so she could sit down. The woman declined, so the 45-year-old tried to sit down anyway. Well, that didn't sit well, no pun intended, with the other woman. So she became enraged, pushing the victim, scratching her on the chest, pulling her hair, which is always a 
girl tactic, yeah. and biting her on the forearm, causing bleeding. The suspect fled the train, but not before the victim snapped a cell phone of the woman baring her teeth. Police shared the photo with the public, seeking their help to find her. So I can just see a Matt Townsend Have video you of you burying this? your teeth Arr. out to the, <laughs> out to the media. Find this man. Are you serious? Is that funny? That Scratching, is... biting, pulling. Yeah, that's what we do. Stacy, what happened to your arm? Oh, you won't believe this story. <laughs> I was just trying to sit down on the subway. Yeah, Are I you think that's kidding? Good to bite and like cause bleeding. You're wondering you know who what? bit the well, woman if she's got anything. You know? I have this value system that mm-hmm. says don't bite people on the subway. For sure. That's a good one. I, it, good just, rule. It's a weird rule. I don't know if it's my values or if it's just Yeah, and that subway here in Utah. I know that happens all the time. I mean, seriously. <laughs> who Who bites somebody? And by the way, and who doesn't move their bag? Yeah, you just move the bag. I mean, come if on. they're not going to move their bag, you know what? They've got something going on. Yeah, there's either a bomb in the bag, <laughs> or they've got bigger problems. Mm-hmm. So I might not. Very selfish, I know. think. Yes. Holy cow! Hey, was it true the uh, the recall? Mm-hmm. The name of the bakery was called Bimbo Bakery. Bimbo Bakery. I know. I saw that and I thought, really? Wow. Yeah, Bimbo <laughs> Bakery. Man, I don't want to say anything. About no, that. no idea of uh, Megan Kelly. Works at the Bimbo Bakery. Apparently, <laughs> yeah, Donald Only Trump. Only saying that because Donald Trump called her Bimbo. Well, yeah, he keeps forwarding those silly texts. Yeah, come on. Okay, interesting. Wow, weird news, folks. People are weird out there, and so you know, be careful. If they're not going to give up their seat, just assume there's a reason. Might be mental health. Might be, you know, they just need to keep their bag where it is. <sighs> be careful. We're going to take a break. I mean, it makes you wonder, are we going to ever be able to raise kids in a healthy way in this culture, in this environment? Up next, Richard Rendy will be joining us. He is um, an expert in, in your kids and child development. He's a developmental psychologist, and he is a co-author of the book Raising Can-Do Kids. Stick with us, folks. We're going to be giving you the tools, the things your kids need to make sure that they uh, can handle this thriving, fast-changing world. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we were trying to get on um, a, a guest uh, about talking about can-do kids and raising our kids so that they can handle the things that they have to face here in today's day and age. I mean, just even the shooting, sadly, of two, you know, journalists, it's it's a crazy moment. And it, I think it, it could create a lot of fear in our kids as they're, as they're like, they might have a lot of questions. They might have, well, why would anyone do that? But the neat thing about life is that um, life is always there to teach us. And one of the things I'm a big believer in as a parent and just as a coach, we've got to figure out ways to, to use every moment with our children as a teaching moment. And so one of the things I wanted to teach you today is how we could spend some time teaching our children to be more emotionally intelligent, um, more connected, more understanding to, by the way, their own emotion and the emotions of others. For example, 
let me give you two. Let me just give you a little um, experience of how we can teach our children to deal with negative emotions, and I'll give you an example of how we shouldn't and how we should. A Long Island man was arrested recently on criminal tampering charges after he recorded himself using a painter's pole to re-aim the red light cameras. So at a red light, you know they have cameras so the police can take pictures of um, your car and then send you a ticket in the mail. Well, this guy obviously didn't like it. His name was Stephen Ruth, 42 years old, of Center Reach, and he posted videos on his Facebook page showing himself using a painter's pole to re- re-aim those red light cameras up to the sky, right? And he just posted it on Facebook, kind of a passive-aggressive way to show, hey, the police can stick it in their nose, right? So, But in reality, um, the cops found out about it, and when they found out about it, they showed up at his house. <laughs> Can you imagine? Hey, kids, uh, I'm going to go talk to the nice police officer. Don't worry. Daddy's okay. Anyway, uh, Ruth was arrested Tuesday on four counts of criminal trespassing and is believed to have used this method from his videos to re-aim four red light cameras in Suffolk County. Ruth said on Facebook post that he knew he would be arrested but he wanted to take a stand for the taxpayers who received tickets from the cameras. Wow. Well, man, Daddy, that was a powerful stand. Can we visit you in prison? One way, everybody has emotion, right? And everybody gets ticked off about what's happening in this world. But certain people just go off. And certain people don't know quite how to manage their emotions. There's, there's a, a great book out by a, a, a man named um, Daniel Goleman called, um, emotional, uh, called EQ, Emotional Intelligence. And it, honestly, it's a book I think everybody needs to read. For years, we used to just love and think if you had a high IQ, you're, that's the key to success in life, folks. Just having a really high IQ is all you need to get ahead. But uh, some recent research, actually about 25 years old, Daniel Goldman and others are finding out that some of the healthiest, happiest, most successful people actually don't have high IQ. They have what's called high emotional intelligence. And they're finding out that people with emotional intelligence have the ability to accurately read and understand the needs, the motivations, the beliefs, and the desires of themselves and others. So he wrote a book called Emotional Intelligence. If you're going to teach your kid any skills on this earth, I'd start with emotional intelligence. It's probably pound for pound the best investment skills-wise that you could give your kids. Because notice what emotional intelligence means, that you can accurately read and understand needs, motivations, beliefs, and desires of yourself and others. And it is truly a powerful skill set. Do you feel like you're very good at that? Do you have the ability to manage your own emotion? So if you're ticked about something, do you have the ability to not freak out about it, to not go off on somebody, to not have the cops called? Do you have the ability to effectively go manage a response that will keep you able to keep managing life instead of just getting you arrested? 
powerful, powerful skills. So let's go through four different tools that we as parents could be teaching our kids, okay? The first set of skills that um, we need to make sure that we're teaching them is self-awareness. Now, self-awareness, it's a very basic idea. What am I feeling in this current situation? When you go take your kids to school for the first day and they're freaking out and they're nervous and they're upset and they can't uh, – and you can tell they're nervous and you see they're nervous and you're like, don't be nervous. You shouldn't be nervous. Is that what we should be teaching our kids? Or should we be poo-pooing their emotions and saying, well, you shouldn't feel that way? That's silly. No. Self-awareness is when we teach our kids to accurately name their emotion. If they are sad, teach them that that's sad. When they are feeling lonely because their friend's out of town and they don't have anyone to play with, tell them you seem lonely, you seem sad, you seem down. And actually let them have the feeling and the emotion. And the more we teach them that these emotions have names, don't judge them like that's stupid. Let them have the name. And if the emotion is sad, let them feel it. Once you help them recognize what emotion, what feeling sad feels like, they now can connect to sad the rest of their life. If somebody in your family just passed away, instead of just quietly grieving, express to your family that you feel sad. I feel sad with Aunt June passing. I miss her. She was a special lady. And then express and share those feelings. You could also teach your kids the complexity of emotion. You can use bigger words, right? You can use bigger words than just sad. And you might notice that sad and lonely might have another feeling. I feel uh, rejected. You know, that might, be, that might be another emotion that's a little more complex. Anger and frustration have other names, Right? And so you can start to create a better vocabulary for your children. And as you start to show that, you know, emotions can get more and more complicated, you can even teach them that when they don't know what they're feeling, just say, you know what, emotions are complicated. Just use your words. Try to help me understand. Well, I feel a little bit sad, but I also feel I feel hurt. So what do we call somebody that's sad and hurt? Ugh. I feel bad. Okay, sad, bad, and hurt. It's complicated. And if you can come up with other words for them, then it's powerful. Then you give your children a really powerful vocabulary that they can become aware of. It's like teaching a person to balance, right, a bicycle. You can't just say balance. You have to let them experience balance. And the same is true with these emotions. And when you watch a story on the news like this terrible shooting of – that reporter and her cameraman, I mean, that is a great example of where we could start to teach our children to become self-aware. What am I feeling in the current situation? People that have emotional intelligence are aware of their feelings. They're aware of their feelings. And if you can recognize your feelings, it increases your ability to recognize the feelings of others. Another thing you can do as you get a little older and as the kids get a little older, you can actually start to connect their reactions to their feelings, to their triggers, right? So you can can start having your teenager say, what was it that made you go chase your brother and want to hit him? Well, I was mad. 
Well, what was it that you were mad about that made you actually feel like hitting your brother was the answer? And you can start, well, because he was making, he was telling me I was stupid. And then you can start connecting the feeling of when you feel rejected and like somebody's putting you down, you can help show them that that's a trigger. Can you imagine a child that recognizes their triggers? How cool would that be? So first principle is self-awareness. What am I feeling in this current situation? Help your kids understand their emotions, teach the complexity of emotion, and help them connect their reactions to their emotions. We'll take a break, folks. When we come back, we're going to continue this discussion of how to raise an emotionally intelligent kid and how to help them actually manage their emotion, regulate their emotion, how to help them be aware of others' emotions, and how to manage relationships. Stick with us, folks. This is the Coach's Corner. You're listening to Dr. Matt right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back after the break. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, we were talking about emotional intelligence and uh, how to raise a, an emotionally intelligent kid. We we started the subject by um, talking about raising these can-do kids, which is a book that's out, uh, written by our uh, our next guest, Richard Rendy. Richard uh, Rendy um, with put together the book on on this this parenting book on raising successful kids with Jen Prosek. And it's a, it's an important book today when you think about it because so many of our kids they're they're just they have to learn how to be independent and how to to deal with and thrive in this fast changing world. And uh, the name of the book is called "Raising Can Do Kids: Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in the Fast Changing World." We've got Doctor uh, Rendy on the phone right now. Richard Rendy, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt, thanks for having me on. You bet. Great to have you. You also are a developmental psychologist and research professor at the Alpert Medical School in Brown University. How did you get started on writing this book um, on can-do kids? Well, Matt, it was sort of two streams. And as you mentioned, I wrote it with Jen Prosek, who's an entrepreneur. And, you know, we're coming at it from totally different angles, Jen being someone who's out in the business world, uh, who runs a company, who hires lots of young people. And for myself, being a developmental psychologist as a researcher, we both came to the same conclusion, and which is that, you know, all this obsession we have right now in trying to make sure kids are going to be successful is leading parents, uh, good-intentioned parents, to a lot of practices that really undermine kids' ability to be successful later in life. And, you know, what we found was, you know, thinking both about the, the current research, but also, you know, that perspective of when kids get out into the world beyond college, what are the skills that they're going to need to be successful? You get a total mismatch with how kids are growing up today. And so we wanted to orient the book both with that long view of what, what it's going to mean to be successful later in life with, um, you know, what we call evidence-based practice, yeah. uh, dipping into the research, um, 
and thinking through how kids really develop socially, personally, cognitively, and especially in terms of those skills they're going to need, uh, what we all need now, but we think kids are going to just need more and more in the future. You call that, I guess, a resourcefulness factor. Is that right? That our children yeah. need to have resourcefulness and um, we can either set up that resourcefulness as they're gro- growing up or we can actually hinder their ability to be resourceful. Yeah, you know, one of the ways we do this, Matt, and I talk to parents a lot in a, in a lot of capacities, which I enjoy doing. So, I, I, you know, I'm a parent, too, and we're all kind of dealing with this thing. And I think it's pervasive that no one knows what it's going to be like for, let's say, a five-year-old today, right? Right. What it's going to be like, what's the world going to be like when they're 25? You know, what we what we are seeing is that, you know, how you used to think kids might be successful. You find a career, you go into it, uh, you work your way up, you know, a proverbial ladder, etc. You know, that's not how, how those kids are going to be growing up. We already see it in the workplace now, but kids might have not just multiple jobs across multiple, you know, companies or wherever context they work, they may have multiple professions, and those professions are going to pull on skills that we don't even know are going to exist yet. You know, if you just think about how technology has changed how we all work over even the last 10 years. Um, So there's this funny thing that happens. We get worried that, you know, the world's going to be more and more complicated and changing and all that. But the reaction is to be so nervous that we just try to make them successful right now, and, yeah. as opposed to saying, look, that's what the world's going to be like. Let's give them. They're going to have to be resourceful. They're going to have to be you know, resilient. They're going to need some optimism. They're going to have to be innovative, problem-solving, and creative. And, and there's going to be a lot of ways they're going to have to collaborate. And you know, those ways of collaborating with people get more complicated. Mm. Um, you know, it's, it's, you can be working with people all over the world via, you know, multiple mechanisms uh, in addition to face-to-face. And it's like, so how do you prepare kids for the unknown? Uh, give them all those skills that help you take on the unknown. Yeah, and it's I, like as principles, they'll apply in everything they do, whether, I mean, even with the changing future, you know, innovation and your ability to innovate with others, that's not a principle that's going to die. You're going to always need to know how to innovate. You're going to always need to know how to problem solve and be creative and be optimistic. All of those are things that will only enhance life. Yeah, and I think, Matt, you know, the, the and for me talking to Jen and, and for her to reflect on what she hears, uh, you know, out in the, sort of in the employment force, um, you know, all those skills have always been important, right? We've known that, and they've always been supportive of success. I think the the difference for, I think you see it already now, but in the future, I think the difference is going to be that they're going to be essential. They're going to yeah. be actually the epicenter of what you need to be successful. I think kids feel it now, you know, they, they go to, you know, they work hard, they do all these activities, they go to a great school, and guess what? You go out in the world, and it's not like you've got this 40-year career waiting for you, mm-hmm. right? It's like, what do I do now? You bet. And, and how, the, how, you know, the job force can change uh, quickly. You know, positions can change in a day. No. You know, I've, 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 seen, I've seen that, for example, in journalism, how, you know, the course of of two years, how an editor 
editor's job might change morph, just depend trying to keep up with the world you that's know, right print, print media right to online and then how much do you include video and how much do you include social media and it's something that's not just this fixed thing it's something they have to surf you know and, and i do a lot of blogging and i've seen how that world has changed tremendously over just a few years. And I mean, where you can make a career blogging, you know, you, you used to have to be a reporter to make right. a career, but now you can build your own audience. You don't even need, you know, the big networks. You can just build your own blog. Yeah, that's, I mean, the, the future, it's such a strange place, isn't it? So having these dynamic skills, which have always mattered, um, but really being good at it. And, and But it's almost like it seems like, Richard, that as parents we have to, we have to let our kids do some growing up. And, and it's almost like we're so afraid of them failing that we don't allow any of these dynamic skills in. We just kind of ensure success. But that doesn't set them up for a good future. Yeah, and, and I think, Matt, the, the thing, and I'm sympathetic to, to parents, you know, because they're part of this bigger sort of culture. So the reaction has been, right, give your kid, in essence, more and more assets. What do we mean by assets? Right, a transcript, extracurriculars. Yeah. Right, right, just things that make you, you know, you think you're going to make you stand out. Try to get into what's defined as an elite college, and that's just a whole other conversation, right, about how that <laughs> has spun out of control. Right. With all the amazing schools we have in this country, you know, the one thing we shouldn't be worried about is that our kids aren't going to get a great education somewhere. There's phenomenal schools everywhere. But, you know, what, what I think the leap of faith, so I understand that from parents, you know, but I think the leap of faith has to come a couple places. One is to understand that that's, not going to give them really the skills. And secondly, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. We have to get parents to back off, leave their kids alone, etc. I don't think that's the case. I think we're talking about good parents, and there's plenty of ways for them to be involved, but to be involved differently and to be more supportive of how kids develop. And your role is actually, in my view, in our book, when we go through it, it actually argues for what I would say is a more involved role, but involved differently. Mm. So more involved, meaning less activities outside of the home, more time at home interacting with parents, but with parents doing things that I think come naturally to them, that they'll be reassured. You know, the real cutting-edge research is showing, we'll give your kids these skills. One concrete example, you know, unstructured play at home. You know, the old building blocks, yeah. you know, all those kinds of things. You know, you can, you can, as a parent, you don't have to just put your kid alone in a room. You can be there, and we talk in the book of all these ways that, that research is showing about how you can really promote problem solving. So not that, you know, that's what you want every second of your moment with your child, mm -hmm. you know, doing. But it actually gives you the tools to really relax and play which, in a way that I think would be, you know, fun for most parents. But the thing is, you have to realize, don't dismiss that. That's actually the gift. That's actually the time when you're, when you're letting them be creative and you're giving them a lot of, not telling them what to do, but like, what are you going to do next? Have them talk. And what are you trying to build? If something doesn't work, it's like, wow, how yeah. are you, gonna, you know, what are you going to do with that? And, you know, that interactive kind of thing, you don't necessarily see it at home, 
you don't see it in a transcript, but I'll tell you what, you put those kids in a laboratory with cognitive scientists, and they're talking about these kids are acting like scientists, right? I mean, yeah. toddlers are amazing with their skills, but we've we got to give them the time. And parents, you know, can really do it. They're, they've got the, the tools, and we want parents to be, in some sense, better involved. And not so. Not, it's not backing off. It's being more involved mm-hmm. in, in better proactive, supportive ways for their kids. Well, like just, less, I mean, again, stressful. yeah, you think about it, just having a box of, just a box of blocks and all of a sudden go get creative and build a problem that we have to solve. How do we build this road, block road all over the pillow? All of a sudden yeah. you solved, you get your kid thinking that way. And, and I mean, I, I really think it's, I think it's just like you're saying, it's more involved, but it's different. It's not like more involved driving them to 15 more things. It's more involved just giving them some time and being there. We're speaking with Dr. Richard Rendy. He is the author of Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in Fast-Changing uh, World. We're going to take a break, uh, come right back, continue this interview, start getting some more tools, some more ideas on how to raise their optimism, their, uh, their resiliency, how to help them to respond positively to failure. Lots of tools to help raise these can-do kids. Stick with us, folks. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, in this crazy, turbulent time, how do you raise can-do kids? Our guest today is Dr. Richard Randy. He's the author, co-author of the book, Raising Can-Do Kids, Giving Children the Tools to Thrive in Fast-Changing World. And uh, Dr. Randy is walking us through some of the tools, some of the ideas. Um, one of the things that he was talking about I guess we just lost him again. We were having phone problems. But one of the things he was talking about is this con- this concept of resiliency. And our kids are are constantly under um under pressure for their ability to manage and handle their life and to handle and be resilient um with life. And again, like what he was saying is you can't always know what the future is going to look like, but we can set them up with some really powerful skills and tools just simply, for example, by playing with them. A little more time playing with your kids, uh, doing something that's just blocks even, something that isn't doesn't necessarily have a time limit and doesn't necessarily have a beginning and an end but allows them to just be creative could be a very powerful tool. So Dr. Uh, Richard Rendy, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Matt. Great to have you back. Uh, some other uh, principles or concepts you were teaching about to create the can-do kid are principles like optimism. Why Why is optimism so important going forward with the kids? Well, look, let's face it. I mean, we've always – everyone's always had lives where there's going to be a lot of, of bumps in the road and problems to solve and things that aren't going their way. Um, you know, if we look again at some of the things that parents worry about, that the future is going to be uncertain, that, that – you know, there's a lot of scariness about the unknown. I mean, that's screaming for optimism because we're talking, you know, optimism as a, in research has a tremendous platform that goes back for decades. It's often misunderstood. We're talking about a very realistic 
optimism that actually acknowledges exactly what's going on, exactly what the issues are, exactly what the problems are, but orients you to thinking about what is that next thing I can do, not to necessarily get rid of the problem, but what's the next step I can take to try to chip away at it. Hmm. And that's the kind of thing that over time, you know, we talk to a lot of entrepreneurs who, um, you know, go through years and years of, uh, you know, lack of success and things falling apart. And, and it's not, a, it's not that kind of blind faith or that wishful thinking, you know, that, that, yeah. that sinks to you. It's not like, oh, this will work out. I'll just keep doing this. They keep like looking at what am I learning from my experiences and what do I, what can I do a little differently? This hasn't worked. This hasn't worked. And, but you need that emotional drive. That's part of the optimism. It's both cognitive, right? It's a belief system yeah. that I can change things, but it's also a little bit of, you know, you can't get that, that negative thinking leads to negative emotions. And that's the thing that makes you stop. And yeah, it bogs you down. It bogs you down. And it also prevents you from seeing these little slivers of opportunity that, you know, all of that, that pounding and, and all that might, in essence, be taking you to where you want to go. Mm. But you have to have that viewpoint of, I'm going to look look for it. Um, I'm going to use an analogy, which is um, not a great analogy, but I try to come up with one yeah. to try to make a point. Let's say, you know, something's important to you. You're trying to get into a parking lot, right? And, you know, you, you're, show, you're pulling up towards it, and it's, it looks full, right? It looks jammed. Yeah. And you could, on the one hand, say, you know, ah, forget it, you know, this thing I was going to was really, really critical for me tonight. But look, it's jammed up. You start getting mad. You get frustrated. You start looking around. And what happens in your brain, all of a sudden, you say, I'm not going to get to the spot. Forget it. Yeah, right. As opposed to saying, well, let's see. Maybe I'll circle the lot. And maybe when you're in that funky mood, someone's walking out. And someone who, who's optimistic by nature is thinking, okay, what are my options here? First of all, Maybe someone's going to leave. And, you know, they're going to have their radar screen on, and they're going to say, whoa, there's a person walking out, window down. Hey, you leaving? Cool. I'll, you know, you go to that spot. You might think about where else can I park? Can I park somewhere else? Can I walk two blocks to get there? What do I need to do? Yeah. And, you know, it's, it's, it's a real-life moment, but you could see just from, from even that kind of, you know, it's a real-life example. Um, but those are things that actually come into play. You know, things in life aren't always hugely dramatic. It's these little kinds of bumps. And and these are the things that, you know, I use that example because think about it now if your kid's in the car. Yeah, that's what I was just thinking. If my kid's in the car and I'm modeling and, and even talking mom- out what I'm doing. Yeah. Oh, crap. Everyone else got here before me. Yeah. I'm done. It's over. Yeah. I've lost out on my opportunity. I'm going to go home and sulk. The gods are against me. I never get my parking place, right? Exactly. How come they got their spot? Right. (laughs) And then also, you know, or as opposed to this kind of problem. So, hey, let's everybody, eyes open, see if someone's leaving. Um, Let's think about where else do we park? Um, Well, and ask your kids and, and like, sit there and say, okay, what would you guys do? What should we do? What are some ways we could fix this together? I mean, any, and really, it's anywhere. It's how can we get our shopping done and... The, the house cleaned by noon so that we can go do something fun and brainstorm it. 
Absolutely, and I, I would I would guarantee you that any very successful person across any domain will tell you that they have those moments, you know, throughout their career where those little moments, those little kinds of things are kind of the stuff of the big success. Yeah. That it's not just that, you know, it's a huge opportunity and make or break. It's these little day-to-day things that keep the, the people going and and from for kids to learn that, you know, they'll, they'll translate that. They're going to translate that into, I mean, let's take it a step further. Let's say you go through all those steps, your kid's brainstorming with you in the car, you don't get a parking spot. So do you just go home and say, well, we tried. <laughs> or do Day you say, over. All right, look, let's, let's learn from this. Next time, let's leave early. Yeah. Yeah. You know, let, next time, hey, all right, lesson learned. Guess what, guys? This was really important. Yeah. And this is the key of the optimism, right? It's not whistling in the dark. Right. It's like saying, okay, you know what? We got a little burned here by this. Next <laughs> time, let's get here a half hour early. Let's figure out something to do to kill time and make sure we're here early next time. And that's the problem solving. It seems thing. like that's the – it's it's almost like – and what I know it is one of your principles too is thinking out of the box. But it's like as parents, we need to parent out of the box. We need to kind of parent for the future – not yes. parent the way we were parented. Absolutely. Absolutely. This is going to be the kid's future. Think about this with all the, you know, trying to figure out what kind of work they're going to do, navigating a, a workspace, navigating how, you know, things change. You show up one day, someone else owns a company you're working for. What are you going to do? Yeah. You know, you're going to, this, your job might change. Maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe you need to get out of there. Um, these and that stuff happens quick, right? right? That stuff can happen fast. You have to be flexible. And so, I want to point out something that you said, Matt, that I think is really important. You know, in our book, you know, when you're laying these things out and you're, you want people to focus on different themes, and we mentioned this at the end of the book, it, it's sort of arbitrarily you have to lay them out one by one. But the fact of the matter is, all this stuff pulls in together, right? Mm-hmm, right. So you said. Right, it's optimism plus it's thinking out of the box, right? Which is the innovation, and, yeah, um, and the hard work. That is something we talk about in industrious, just to you know to know the the, the value of part. It, it all comes together in real moments. It's not like one minute I need to pull on optimism. They, these things all feed each other, and this is why they're so powerful when you put them all together that it leads to successful adult. Well, I mean, I would hear it. I love I it. I guarantee you, someone, you talk to somebody out in the world, I don't care if it's a music business, and that's one of the things. We talk to people in all kinds of businesses. It's not, you know, if you want just someone with a startup yeah. company type entrepreneur or an inventor. But, you know, put all this stuff together, even with that silly example. I'll tell you, you know, you're, you're going for a position, you're going for an internship, you're going for this, you're going for that. What are they looking for? Mm. They're looking for the kid who's there 15 minutes, 20 minutes early because you know what that's telling them? They put all this together in their mind. Yeah, and they've got it and they're, and they're ahead of it. And um, that I think that's the key, Richard. And I, I really appreciate the idea on the book too that, that the can-do kid idea is the idea that they are already capable of doing it. So – Folks, all of us as parents, we, we've got it. I appreciate uh, Dr. Richard Rendy and the, the raising the can-do kids, giving children the tools to thrive in a fast-changing world. Folks, we've got to start uh, teaching our children to get ready for what their future is going to look like and basic principles, optimism, um, resiliency. Man, they, they can't go wrong. Let's spend a little more time 
being, uh, you know, more of what our kids need us to be for them. We'll take a break. Hour number two of the Matt Townsend Show. It's in the can. We'll be back after the break with more ideas, more tools to help you find the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day. Hour number three of the Matt Townsend Show. Holy cow, we got a great topic for you coming up in just a few minutes. Do you feel like you um, uh, are having a midlife crisis? Do you believe in a midlife crisis? I mean, I've seen many a person that I'm confident they were having a midlife crisis. In fact, I've had people having a quarter-life crisis. <laughs> Mike has Mike is not even to the age of having a quarter-life crisis, and you've already— I, I don't know what I'm doing You've now. had a fifth-life crisis. I don't know what I'm doing with my life. Well, we'll figure that out. We've got nothing but time, Michael. By the way, Mike, do you know what today's day is? You told me earlier. What it's a, is it? It's Burger Day. Burger Day. It's a new day. It's a Burger Day. I think we just all need to start coming up with our own days. I want it to be Frozen Chocolate Banana Day. I'm pretty you sure there is one of those. haven't had one of those for a while. Oh, that's a great. Well, that's like Disneyland. I let's just make that happen tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> frozen Chocolate Join Banana Day. Join us tomorrow day. for Frozen Chocolate Banana Day. Yesterday you brought up, Kathy, that McDonald's – uh, that Burger King was inviting McDonald's to be a part of a really cool opportunity to share uh, a McWhopper. They were going to create a McDonald's Whopper mm-hmm. and have it and sell it, I guess, in uh, in New York, in Manhattan. I think it was in Atlanta. Was it Atlanta? Yeah, Atlanta. So they were going to combine good things about the Big Mac and the Whopper. For and, Peace Day. Right, uh-huh. So that we could show peace. But McDonald's said, nay, nay. Yeah. I think he thought it was kind of a little ploy that yeah. they didn't want to get involved in. But they turned down the offer. This is what they said. The company's CEO, Steve Easterbrooks, responding via Facebook, said, We love the intention, mm-hmm. but think our brands could do something bigger to yeah, make a difference. Bigger, baby. Yeah, by the way, you know like what they're a doing? a double McWhopper, maybe. Like a double McWhopper. By the way, which is sad because Panda, Panda Express <laughs> asked Taco Bell to go ahead with it, and they are still doing Panda Bell Day. Panda Bell. Uh huh. It's good. Uh, and they're going to start with their Mongolian empanadas. <laughs> so yummy! Have you ever had the Mongolian beef empanada? Mmm, to die for. And the orange chicken burrito supreme. Oh, just not thinking that sounds very good. Is that you <laughs> eating, Kathy? Was <laughs> sorry, that someone I'll, eating? I was always told to chew with my mouth closed. I'm Holy sorry. cow! That was Mike. That's that some me. aggressive eating. That wasn't a girl eating. That was a guy. <laughs> Did you hear about the man that ate uh, record 17 Big Macs in one hour? Mm-hmm. He, uh, he was trying to do 25. I know. What yeah. a loser. Couldn't even finish. I, I, was, I told that story the other day, so you obviously wasn't, you weren't no, listening No, I was. I was. But this is, <laughs> you know he died. He did not. Yeah, he died 12 hours later of a heart attack. Yeah, whatever. Did he really? No. no I'm just joking. Oh. Just joking about some guy's death. <laughs> not a big deal. The dude ate 17 you know, Big Macs. I do remember seeing a story on a man who's eaten a Big Mac every day for like 25 oh, yeah. years. I just totally believed you. I know. And <laughs> I, I never I believe too, anything Mike. you say. I know. I know. Right why, why did we believe I sold it. I sold it. He, you know what? Here's the deal. The guy was left him. It would, he was left after 17. He was gone for 25. He was already doubled over 
20 minutes in, he had 10 Big Macs in him, and he was already not feeling good. That's crazy. 10 in 10 minutes. That's impressive. You know what, though? That sounds better to me than downing like 60 hot dogs. That oh, sounds awful sure. to me. Oh, Ugh. because hot dogs don't have special sauce. That's true. This, <laughs> the special sauce <laughs> helps it go down easier. I wonder if he dips the Big Mac in fluid like the <laughs> hot dog guy does. Yeah, the water, just the water to make mm. it do that. Oh. Sounds yeah, good. Ew. But, Mike, seriously. Chew with your mouth closed, brother. Bro. Bra. <laughs> Bra, chew with your mouth closed. Um, that is so disgusting. Uh, anyway, um, that's my little donation to the news. Mm-hmm. Uh, Kathy, do you have any uh, headlines for yes, us? Yes, I do, Matt. U.S. stocks climbed this morning as the Dow moved up 236 points a short time ago. The Nasdaq Composite rose 84 points. Energy stocks were among the biggest gainers as oil climbed back above $40 a barrel. Investors were encouraged by a surge in the Chinese stock market when it closed up 5.3% today. WDBJ Television in Virginia held a moment of silence this morning for the two journalists killed yesterday. Vester Lee Flanagan, who went by the professional name of Bryce Williams, shot and killed reporter Allison Parker and photographer Adam Ward during a live interview. Flanagan, who was fired at the station and had a history of workplace problems, later killed himself. Parker's boyfriend, Chris Hurst, said they had, quote, a magical nine months together. I just can't believe that she's gone. Allison was a marvelous storyteller with so much promise ahead of her. Allison was the the brightest light that I have ever met. She was the funniest, kindest, most beautiful woman that I ever met, and she just happened to love me back. Meanwhile, Parker's father, Andy, is vowing to take action on gun control. I'm for the Second Amendment. But there has to be a way to force politicians that are cowards and in the pockets of the NRA to come to grips and, and make sense, have, have sensible laws so that crazy people can't get guns. It can't be that hard. And yet politicians from the local level to the state level to the, to the national level, they sidestep the issue. They kick the can down the road. This can't happen anymore. The woman being interviewed yesterday, Vicki Gardner, who was also shot, is listed in good condition this morning. The suspect's family issued a statement expressing their deepest condolences to the families of the two victims. Walmart, the world's largest retailer, said it's removing semi-automatic rifles and similar sports firearms from its stores. They say it's not because of yesterday's shooting, but due to low sales. Tropical Storm Erica is forcing government leaders in Puerto Rico to shut down schools and airports today. The storm is expected to be near South Florida by Monday, but the storm's intensity is uncertain. Vice President Joe Biden said yesterday he's not sure he has what he called emotional fuel for another election campaign. In a conference call with Democratic National Committee members, he said he would only run if his heart and soul were in the race, and right now they're both pretty banged up. Biden lost his son Beau to cancer in May. Meanwhile, a new poll released today shows Biden would fare better than Hillary Clinton against the top GOP presidential candidates. The man who killed 12 at a movie theater in Colorado three years ago was sentenced yesterday to 12 lives, life sentences plus 3,318 years in prison. The jury ruled out the death penalty earlier. And Matt, a parrot was detained in India recently. Yeah, we talked about for, this. Did I miss that? Yeah. When did you talk about did it? Did you hear about it? No. But read it. It's hilarious. Read when it. When did you read about it? Oh, just yesterday. I'm sad. Was, I think you were oh, out Oh, that's in. me. I don't listen to you. You were okay. out getting a Big Mac. <laughs> <laughs> so it was detained for allegedly hurling obscenities yeah. at an 85-year-old woman. 
I'm going to keep going. You've already read yeah, this. Yeah, well, we talked about it yesterday, okay. but this is a hilarious story. Darn. The woman says her stepson trained the bird to <laughs> insult her every time she walked by the home. Police called the woman, her stepson, hey. and the parrot into the station. Yeah. But apparently the bird knows when to keep its beak shut. Yeah. Though the bird didn't utter a bad word at the station, it was put into the custody of the forestry department because of the woman's, quote, harassed mental condition. <laughs> yeah, totally cool. Oh, by the man, way, I should have paid attention. Did you not hear? Oh, we talked about Darn. it for hours. Oh. We, um, Do you think they use one handcuff? Yeah, we talked about that. The yeah. chest? You just cuff no, it around use, the chest. No, they use those, um, what are those? Zip ties? The zip, zip ties. ties. Yeah, yeah, probably yeah but with a little bird, <laughs> you, you don't even need, you just, you know, You break the stapler. legs, they're tiny. <laughs> yeah, that poor bird, you know? You know, didn't know it was saying bad words. Oh, yeah. Well, it's, you know, then, then it's not even you saying it. It's just, it's the bird. <laughs> did you call my mother fat? No, no, I didn't. that wasn't me. My bird did. <laughs> Talk to the bird about jeans, it. Do these jeans make me look fat? You just, you know? <laughs> no, you just are fat. <laughs> Polly want a cracker? Mama's fat. <laughs> it's a bad. Um, it's it's a bad example. Very bad example. That's why you don't yes. have a parrot. <laughs> That's exactly. You're why never going to have that problem with I'm a not dog. A bird person. I mean, right. I love birds, but just not in my home. Birds are messy. Yeah, very. But by the way, very good in a sandwich. Ooh. So good. Totally not parrots. By the way, just. Turkey? Any other bird. Yeah. Do you eat quail? Chicken? See, I think – I don't I, know. I'm just not a no. hunter person, so – You know what? I don't yeah. – I don't eat quail because a, a bunch of quail are a what? What do we call a lot of quail? Cute. A covey of quail. Oh, a covey. And I worked for Stephen Covey, so I can't eat You can't eat do that. Yeah. Ever since then, Never. it's like – And you probably have them roaming through your bushes, so uh-huh, it's just yeah, hard you to don't. eat when you see them out there. <laughs> we have – you know, we have a lot around my house? Um, ducks. Really? We have a lot of ducks. We do. We have a lake and a pond, and they feed during the fall, and then they go fly south. Mm-hmm. Didn't and you used to have pet ducks? I used to have a pet duck. You did yeah, not. I did. Yeah, did. Butch and Sundance. I had two of them. You did not. I know. I really yeah, did. You did. You did. It was the worst Butch gift. Uh, yeah. So my parents divorced, and my dad thought, well, let's get him a duck. <laughs> this will make him feel <laughs> better my about boy the whole duck. situation. <laughs> so, so he gave me a duck for Easter, and when my mom saw it, her head spun all the way around. And bloodshot she out of her She was eyes? so mad. Yeah. You don't get your kid a duck. No. Well, because you went over to you know spend time with your dad, and you yeah. come back with a duck. Home with a duck. With a, with a baby duck chick. A chick. A cute little chick. Oh, well, they're cute. They oh, they're sure. darling. Yeah. They're the it's messiest like things. Your cats yeah. and their kittens are very cute. Oh, yeah. But this is like – these are the messiest things you'll ever see. Mm. And so my mom gave it about a month. And I, I ran home. I'll never forget it. I ran home after school, opened the garage door to find my ducks, to get them out because I always got them out and put them in the little little bucket and watch them swim. So how old they were, were they when you got rid of them? They a were month. gone? They were a month old. Your mom took them away? Yeah. Well, she didn't. She said, what? They're missing? Oh, no. no she, she took them away. <laughs> And you then didn't we were, eat it that night, did you? No. We, it was the weirdest thing. We had um, orange chicken and duck. <laughs> duck l'orange. We, um, no, we had – what we had, it was the craziest thing. We went to a wedding a few years later and my mom said, you see those ducks? And I'm like, yeah. There were ducks in a pond by mm-hmm. the – and she's like, I bet one of those is your duck. I'm like, what you do you mean? She's like, that this is where I brought them. She goes, I brought your ducks here. Well, that made you feel a little better. And it brought back bad memories, and I cried. No, oh. I didn't. I it, it was good. Ducks are hard. That would be a hard pet. That was about the time I'm like, I don't want the duck anymore. I want a donkey. <laughs> Daddy, get me a donkey. <laughs> and then I brought a donkey home the next week. My mom hated my dad. Um, no, that's good. Sad day. 
and Saturday. May, the, may those ducks rest in peace. Butch and Sundance. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Because one of them had a little, you know, like a little, what do they call, mask on. So cute. Hey, we got a great uh, topic coming up. Uh, midlife crisis. Do you ever suffer a midlife crisis in your career or just in life where you're just, uh, you're tired? You don't want to be doing what you're doing anymore. And you're stuck. We'll be talking to an expert that studied it. Why so many of us experience a midlife crisis. That's up next, folks. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, midlife crisis. Have you ever heard of that phrase? And some people, you don't even know what it is. You just, all of a sudden, your dad hates his job and pulls up in a Porsche. You know? Or, you know, marriages and a lot of stuff happens around the midlife crisis. Um, And we wanted to talk to an expert about it. So joining us on the phone is Dr. Hannes Schwant, and she is a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University Center for Health and Well-Being. And she says a mid-career crisis can happen to anyone. It can hit even those who objectively have the most fulfilling jobs. And we've asked her to, to come and just educate us on mid-life crises and the mid-career crisis as well. Uh, Hannes Schwant, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hi there. How Thanks are for you? Calling. Thank you. And uh, to start with, like, I'm a Mr. Hannes Schwann, but like, yeah, my, my first name is German, so it's not always clear for, for Americans. Yeah. Well, I appreciate it. It, it really is um, an honor to have you on the show because when I think of somebody, you know, that's been in a career for 20 years and they're still, you know, they're 45, 40, 50 years old, and then all of a sudden it falls out from under them and they don't want to be in that career anymore, that could be horrendous as a moment for you personally. You've been studying it for us. What do we need to know when we're talking about either a mid-career crisis or a mid-life crisis? So the first fascinating finding from the literature is that um, what you just described, this phenomenon that um, there might be the dad that suddenly hates his job and then ends up in a Porsche, that is not just like the misery, misery of like some individuals, but this is a very widespread um, regularity. So mm. that life satisfaction is high when people are young, then it turns, starts to decline in the mid-30s, and then it bottoms out like between 40, 50, mid-40s, mid-50s, but then it increases again. This is the good news. That is the good news. It's so, so it really is like a, it's a U-curve, right? Exactly. So yeah. it follows a U-curve. And this U-curve that's observed for men but also for women, it's independent of how many children they have. It's independent of people's incomes and their positions. So it's really found across the entire socioeconomic spectrum. Hmm. So really, it's this, the midlife crisis is, it should basically just be expected. Um, to some extent, yes. And in particular... Um, so the big question that I, I was interested in is, uh, like, if we see it independent of people's life circumstances, like, what, is, what are the drivers of the mid-career or the mid-life crisis? And in particular, if it's such a regularity, why does it catch us by surprise? Yeah. 
Yeah, because it, it really does. And then – but I mean it, I've seen it destroy marriages. I've seen it destroy families. I've seen it – yet it's – there. I guess you're saying there are some things that we could anticipate um, to, to, I guess, mitigate it? Yeah, so the the um, what what I what I tried to find out was exactly this question: um, What do people expect? Why don't they expect uh, um, um, the the these uh, um, lows in the middle uh, in, in the in the Lasseter section? And to answer this question, I looked at um, longitudinal data from Germany, and that's like an, um, a unique survey that follows over twenty three thousand individuals. Mm. For a long period of time, from 1991 to 2004, and importantly in this survey, people are not only asked their current life satisfaction, but also their expected life satisfaction in five years' time. Okay. So, because the same people are followed over time, we can then look at how well people predict their future. And do they predict it very well? So, well, it turns out that like young people um, are really overly optimistic. So. When they ask about their future life satisfaction, they don't anticipate the slide down the U-curve, mm. but instead they expect strong increases in their life satisfaction. Okay. Is that just nat- that's just natural being a hopeful kid, I guess? Without- exactly. And there's probably even something positive. So neuroscientists have observed this for a long time, and they believe that over-optimism is um, based on biased information processing in the brain. So they have done brain studies where they... Um, distract parts of the brain, and then suddenly people, young people become um, better predictors of their future. That's um, great. And in general, we see that, that young people often think they will, believe, they, they will beat the average. They'll better be the average. They, 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 they will be the lucky ones yeah. who get the good job, who have the happy marriage, and the healthy children. It's, it's interesting. So um, we really are overly optimistic when we're young, and we, we are biased. We bias the info to be, I guess, more optimistic. Uh, and, and then we also think we are not only we not only bias it we actually think we're exceptional to it so exactly exactly and and th- 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 this could also be of course um efficient in like uh, in in people's lives right probably maybe we wouldn't start many things um uh, in our life when we are young if we knew like maybe we wouldn't get married if we knew that we would divorce right. later right. on with with uh, like a 30% chance or something that's true so, huh so this might be something uh, beneficial and not something that we necessarily want to change. However, what happens when we age is that uh, many things don't turn out as nice right. as we planned. So, for example, people might not um, climb up the career ladder as quickly as they expected, or maybe we do make all the career that we expected, but then realize that like the high incomes or the prestige, that they are not as satisfying mm. as we, as we uh, hoped for. Yeah. And at the same time, that's also what I find in my data, is that the high expectations about the future, they are just downwards. Because, of course, we are learning, right? Yeah, it's not right. that we are just like, have these rosy uh, expectations forever. We learn that things are not as nicely um, and might also not be as good in the future as we always hoped. So this is what makes mid-age or midlife a time of double misery because <laughs> we not only have the disappointments that things don't work out as, as nice as you thought but we also have what i call like evaporating aspirations sure oh you know you're you're hitting reality yeah so your aspirations are evaporating and you're it's kind of like you rode the wave of excitement but you just landed on a beach <laughs> and you're done 
and, and, and it's not and the beach is gross it's not yeah, a healthy nice beach the beach doesn't look that nice yeah. in, in that moment <laughs> and in particular that's something paradoxical and um, it's that Often those who have the least objective reasons to complain, often these people, they suffer the most from the uh, midlife crisis. And this is because they feel ungrateful and disappointed with themselves just because it seems so unjustified. Huh. And this is something important because often these people, they don't even dare to tell other people about their feelings because they think that's just ridiculous and that's just something... They, the feeling they should not have. So, so, so if you're more self-deprecating or more, I guess, um, if, if you're not going to share it, you, you, you keep all of this in and you, I guess you can't process it out. You don't work it out. Exactly. And this is, this is also why it's so important to have this public discussion about it, you know, to have like a uh, discussion as we have right now on the phone yeah. and spread the knowledge about, about these very, um, let's say, biological or very natural developments that, we, that most of us go through oh, at some so point in, in midlife. And um, in response to, to, to my research findings, I got people writing me from all over the planet and telling me how helpful it was already just to know that what they are feeling um, is not something they have to be frustrated about with themselves, but that's actually okay to, to feel this. And this, like, this can be a vicious circle, you know, like yeah. if you're disappointed about your own disappointment, then things just get worse. So just by, by acknowledging that maybe it's something in normal developmental stage, and it's also something temporary, this can already be like a light at the end of the tunnel and help you um, yeah, not suffer so much from it. Right, yeah, and, and not go try to feed the monster. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, it really is like a monster. Uh, we're speaking with Dr. Hannes Schwant, and he is um, – Honestly, this article, I loved it. Why so many of us experience a midlife crisis? It was it was on the Harvard Business Review's website, and he's here to, to enlighten us about the midlife crisis. Let's take a break. We'll come back in about one minute, get more information from Hannes to find out what really is, uh, what else we can be doing to kind of manage those expectations and maybe kind of ride the midlife crisis in a healthier way. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, we are joined on the phone by Dr. Hannes Schwant, a postdoctoral research associate at Princeton University's Center for Health and Well-Being. He's also was the author of uh, the article, A Mid-Career Crisis, um, or uh, what was it called again? It's a great article. Why so many of us experience a midlife crisis. Honestly, folks, it's it's such a big deal, and to start getting some research that it's a expected, and a lot of this is about your expectation, right? We have really high expectations, and then our realities don't tend to to hit that expectation, and it kind of creates a little bubble in our lives. Uh, Dr. Hannes Schwand, welcome back to the show. Hi there. Thanks for being here. Um, talk to us about how we how do we fight this this bubble? We we want to be optimistic, right? We want to be able to to be hopeful about our future like the youth kind of naturally are 
And then, but so how do we mitigate when, when all of a sudden our life is just turning out to be pretty normal? So I think first, like uh, what my data tells or what the research tells us, what happens when people, how do people usually get out of the midlife um, crisis, like the time of double misery, how we, how we uh, framed it, yeah. like the, where we are hit by disappointments and evaporating aspirations. And so what we see is that it's at the bottom of the U-curve. It's like when people are like the most depressed, essentially, like in their mid-40s, mid-50s, um, that's when expectations about the future align with current life satisfaction. So people don't expect further improvements in their life, and they come to terms with how their life uh, played out. Huh. So that's an important aspect. And another important aspect is that brain studies have shown that the elderly brain learns to feel less regret about mischances in the past. Oh, really? Okay, good. That's great news. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's something I think like uh, younger people uh, could learn from the elderly. And for example, there has been like this study, uh, a famous study published in Science, where they played games with young and with um, 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 elderly people, um, where they were allowed to stop the game whenever they wanted, but then there was a profit that was foregone that they didn't get by stopping too early. And then so after they stopped, they showed the subjects which profits, profit they didn't make. And the young brain was outrageous about the missed <laughs> chance. They were really angry, and you saw the heartbeat going um, up, and all kind of like body reactions responded. The elderly brain, there was almost no reaction at all. Wow. Except for a subset of people, of depressed elderly people, like elderly people with mental health problems, they had the same brain response as the young people. Interesting. And so there's a strong um, evidence suggesting that the elderly brain learns to adapt and learns to feel less regret about the past. And so this combination of accepting life how it is, coming to terms with life how it has played out, and feeling less regret about the past, this is what makes life satisfaction increase again. Is, it, is the feeling less regret, is it a chemical thing or is it an actual learned kind of cognitive view of life? So um, what the study suggests is that part of it might really be something in, wired in the brain, like how the brain changes. Oh, because, interesting. Um, it could be that there was like a deeper philosophical reasoning in these games, but these games were quite plain. It was really just like, are you angry or upset about like that you didn't get it right. additional dollars or not? Um, but having said that, this, of course, is something that we can learn or this is something that we can yeah. um, um, uh, implement and, 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 and try to... To, to also maybe, yeah, teach to ourselves. I mean, just the idea, too, of, I mean, w whether it's just biology or whatever it is, I guess wisdom, um, coming to terms, too, with your life, that's a big deal. And do you, do you have any ideas on what works to help us come to terms with it, like to process it and to maybe just see the good of it? Mm, I mean, maybe we should first think about, like, why there is something like regret. And, of course, we see that, Regret is very important, for example, if you're young and you're studying and then you get a bad grade. Right. It's probably good that you regret and you're not like, oh, whatever, can't change it now anymore. Because you do can change it, right? You, you can make improvements right. and, and learn more for the next exam. But, of course, 
if most of the paths in your life have already been set and, 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 and there's not a lot you can change, maybe it doesn't make sense to think about all the chances that you might have missed or all the things that haven't turned out as nice sure. as you thought. Sure. I mean, I guess that's just that's survival, right? We, we need to feel regret so we take advantage of life. Exactly. And also, probably that's what we talked about earlier, this over-optimism of the young is probably also like a survival, or uh, like a, 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 a kind of evolutionary benefit. But then it turns against us in midlife um, when we see that not everything turned out as nicely as we planned. So I guess the best way would be don't get rid of the over-optimism when you're young, but then learn to, to uh, uh, um, live better with maybe some disappointments and live better with expectations that are aligned a little bit downwards mm-hmm. and see this as a temporal and by um, and, and kind of very normal developmental stage in our lives. Yeah. And then I guess don't immediately go buy a Porsche when you're in the middle of your... Exactly. Or the same like with a job. I mean, given that all of this seems a rather natural, normal development, if let's say the and um, burned out Wall Street manager was uh, was to change seats with the frustrated NGO activist. Right. I mean, neither of the two would probably be happier in the end, right? Yeah. Or like think of like those who um, suddenly think, oh, not everything in my marriage has been as nice as I thought. So then uh, they go for a younger partner, you know, who in, in the end there's very little to share with and all this, the the investments and trust and like getting to know each other of the whole past, all of this is lost. The same for jobs, of course. Yeah. Right? All the expertise that you gained um, will be lost. And um, if that's just a temporary um, disappointment that you have, maybe it's not the best idea to really uh, yeah, change your entire life. Which is why I think it's so valuable to have this conversation because just just getting into the psyche of everybody that – the midlife crisis is that it's that weird moment where our life disappointment meets evaporating aspiration. Yeah. It's normal. It's 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 it ought to be anticipated. Yeah. I think ideally, the ideal thing would be even if we would get over the term crisis. Yeah. And maybe I just would would call it like the times of midlife discontent or mm-hmm. midlife reflection or these kind of terms. Yeah. Um, because it's really not something that that is so dramatic. Right. And also, that's something that I often heard and that you often see also in the data. It's not something that just like strikes one day and is gone. The next day, it's really like a longer process. It can take many years. Mm. And this is not what people usually uh, have in mind when they hear crisis. Right. No, exactly. So. I mean, it really is just the midlife reality. It's just... You you become your your life becomes more real. The the exactly, and that you can see, and this is also what many people to me in response to the to the Harvard Business Review article is that those who are out of the crisis they said that they actually feel that they grew during that mm. time. Yeah, that they like became more reflected, and I think that's a very important takeaway that this is kind of a it's a period of time, of your life where. You reflect, you reevaluate your life, and maybe you see that your expectations have been too high in the past, but you also maybe see a little bit like your strengths, your weaknesses. Maybe there are new areas of expertise that you could develop in your job, or maybe there are like new ways to enrich your family or to, to, yeah, to yeah. rebuild um, confidence with your partner. 
And so all of this can have a very positive side, yeah. but certainly not if we just like neglect it as a as a, as a crisis as, right. just, as something silly yeah. and as something people feel they have to be ashamed of. No, I love that, and and I appreciate your work on it. I you have you've changed my mind on it. <laughs> I won't just refer to it as a crisis anymore. Dr. Hannes Schwant, we so appreciate you and your great work. Um, there at Princeton. Keep up the great work on this I- interesting issue and all of us. Uh, it's just a moment. It's a mo- it's just a moment like every other moment in our lives, but there might be a really cool blessing to it as well because when you think about the opportunity to actually get real information, have some of the fog that we had when we were younger, we, we might be able to become something even more powerful just by seeing it more clearly. Wonderful stuff, folks. We'll take a break. Uh, when we come back, we'll be talking to our buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Um, good stuff. Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. Uh, this is one of my favorite songs um, that, uh, that Spencer Linton has ever sung, and I'm just glad that we got the audio of it. Uh, let's shoot it down to B- B- our friends down at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer Linton, Jerem Jordan. Hello, gentlemen. Is Spencer Matt? I'm not Matt. I'm just trying to emulate what I just heard. Duh! <laughs> <laughs> hey, I that I, I just award choir. I'm doing a little tribute to you, Spencer, because I heard you you weren't here yesterday with us um, because you had to go do a little lip syncing for the department. Yes, and I, I was great that I was grateful that they sent some audio from that. That was a little karaoke moment. Did you see the video of it? No, I didn't. Where's because the video? There is also video of it. What song did you sing? It was a mashup, a la Justin Timberlake, Jimmy Fallon. Oh, my heavens. So, yeah, a co-worker of mine, Lauren Frankham and myself, uh, put together a seven-song mashup <laughs> and choreographed it, lip-synced it. That and is awesome. Here's the thing. I just heard from somebody in uh, our IT department that BYU cell phone plans don't allow for short – what's what's the word of the uh, – short number texting because – Short code texting. They voted immediately after. Oh no! And so yeah, we didn't we didn't get the votes that we thought we were going to get. Oh, brother, I'm so sorry. Hey, you know it's uh, it's something that uh, where, we move on from. Where could we get our hands on that video? Well, like, if you were paying attention to your Twitter account, like you should be, Matt Townsend. Yeah, you know I wasn't. It's the weirdest thing. Then you would have seen it come across live on Twitter via. The BYU TV Sports Periscope account. Okay, so we will then go find that and repost that <laughs> on our Twitter feed and on my Facebook page with 40,000 fans. You better hurry because I think it's like a 24-hour window on Periscope. Oh, we've got to get on up. that. I'm sure you've down, You've got to have saved it somewhere else. This is for the kids. No, no. This is oh, not brother. for the kids. <laughs> no, my heavens. You're so talented. Uh, and, Jerem, did you do anything? Oh, you were with me. No, I was, uh, I was here. Yeah, Spencer we were... represented. We were just working. Uh, not a big deal. Hey, um, <clears throat> did you guys hear Different about... assignments. Are you guys fantasy football players? Yes. Do you know that how much money you're costing us? No. 
I'm costing zero dollars. The NFL's popularity is going to cost your boss this season. Fantasy players are expected to use one hour per week updating their rosters, making trades, checking injury reports at work. It's a projected $56.8 million problem. It's not a problem. It's a piece of Americana. Fifty-six point eight. It's a wonderful Listen, thing. Listen, before there Million was fantasy dollars. football, people were wasting time other ways. No, they weren't. They were not. They people were sitting there working time all the time. <laughs> they were just how much time there. is actually spent working is the question. That is the funny thing. I mean, who works anymore? You know what I mean? I don't. I don't. That's for sure. Did I just say that out loud? Who works anymore? No, but really, okay. They, they did. They wasted time. It was just other ways. That's not wasting time. Well, I'm sure at like work. Well, for, for example, work, yes, they may have been putting together a Justin Timberlake lip syncing thing. And I was paid. You got to paid do that. to do that. Yeah, that's funny. You were paid. That's awesome. Yes, I was paid to do that. Holy um, cow! It was a meeting. It was an advancement summit for you. Tell me. Departments now, within now the you realize that if BYU broadcasting had won that, that. Uh. It, it meant, I think, free lunch for all the full-timers here. Or something oh, like that. dude! Was that, the, was that the prize? It was for 10 of my full-time best friends. Oh, <gasps> Would you have included Matt? Would, in would I have been That's there? The would I have been though. there? Well, where not after we today. Where would we have gone? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make you famous. I will put that on. I will put that out there. Okay. You own it. You're right on there. the bubble. You're right on the bubble, man. No, I'm okay. going to launch it to 40,000 of my peeps. That love lip sync and they love Justin Timberlake. Forty thousand. Mm-hmm. Mm, okay. Oh boy! Please invite me to your lunch someday. <laughs> well, they didn't win, so there ain't no lunch, dog. Oh, there will be a lunch. Don't someday. call me dog. Hey, uh, you guys doing your show thing today? That we are every dang day. What's uh, what's on your show today? So Phil Steele, friend of the program, yeah. ESPN insider, college football expert. Released an article on ESPN today titled The Top 10 Group of Five College Football Teams in 2015. Mm-hmm. BYU is not on that list. Rude. Not P5, Group of Five. So this has raised a bigger question. So powerhouses like Temple, Northern yeah. Illinois. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> above so, BYU. So what? There's that omission, but it's become this bigger topic, which is what is BYU in college football? Okay? Yeah. So yeah. we're going to discuss. Because I have a strong opinion that what is BYU? They're independent, but in scheduling, they're one thing. On the field, they're another. Yeah. And actually, they're another. So it depends what you're talking about. But we'll, we'll share thoughts relative to that. Now, That's in Phil's defense, Matt, in yeah. Phil's defense, he forgot. He has clarified his the specifics of this poll. Okay. It, it was poorly titled on ESPN's okay. part. But okay. That's that's because we don't know what to call. BYU. BYU and the group of five in Army. Without saying that phrase. Yeah. Because when you say power five, that includes Notre Dame. Yeah, totally. But a lot of people have to say power five and Notre Dame. Because when there's a power five discussion outside of scheduling, it does not include BYU. Mm. A a guy stopped me going into a volleyball match last year and said, Mm -hmm. can you guys stop calling BYU a non-P5? And I said, why? And he said, because we're a power five. And I said... BYU is not in a Power 5 conference, dude. Show me the money and access associated with Power 5, and I will call BYU a Power 5 team. He's like, no, we're not. And I said, I'm not going to sit here and argue with you over the facts, which BYU is not in a Power 5 conference. Therefore, they're not a Power 5. But that does not make them a group of five team. (laughs) They're independent. They're in no man's land by choice. 
Wow. It's a it's a it's an interesting deal. This is a and great I, discussion. And obviously BYU's got to get into a power five in the next couple of years where they're gonna be in a situation where they are behind the eight ball financially, facilities, recruiting, and that will mean wins on the field eventually. You know what? You guys want some advice? No, but um, no, but go ahead. Um sure. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to sell this topic, you gotta play William Hung, I believe I can fly. <laughs> oh, that's his name. I couldn't remember his if name. If on BYU TV we had the same rights as BYU Radio. I'm telling would. you, dude, that would close the deal. Close the deal. That's, that's how you do it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, that's a great good. show, you guys. Yeah. Fly. It's just wrong. It's so good. Just imagine that you're like talking P5 versus group of five. (laughs) You're just back and forth. But in the back, you've got that kind of, I don't know what the word is, Um, uh, chaotic. He's trying so hard. This sounds like BYU in October last year. (laughs) Anyway, we got to let you guys go. You got a show to do. Have a great show. Uh, Remember who you are and remember that William Hung goes well with everything. Don't put the program in jeopardy. I won't. Keep the faith. Hasta la vista. Well done. Um, isn't that crazy? That They've got, you know what? They've got some battles because their fans just beat them up, you know, wherever they go. Our fans just love us and throw us money and cash, stuff like that. Hey, anyway, I wanted to get to a really interesting story I found. Um, can you believe this story? A visitor went to Yellowstone. And oops, when they got there. Uh, the visitor left a little comment card. Listen to this. They wanted to, you know, when you go there, there's tons of wildlife, right? Tons of wildlife. In fact, according to the park's website, visitors reported more than 40,000 bear sightings between 1980 and 2011. That's a lot of bear sightings. But one guest, when they left, left this card that they believe was totally legitimate. It said, our visit was wonderful, but we never saw any bears. The unnamed guest complains, please, please train your bears to be where the guests can see them. This was an expensive trip to not get to see bears. So next time, train the bears to train the bears to go where the guests can see them, like just like right outside their guest bedroom. Can you imagine you open your door (laughs) and there's some bear just rooting around in your in your garbage can right in front of your here kitty 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 isn't that the craziest thing in the world what do they think this is the circus like seriously are we are is that what we're doing with our wildlife now we're just gonna (laughs) you got circus music look how fast you're getting mommy i didn't get to see a buffalo all of a sudden you got a buffalo welcome to the Yellowstone Circus. We'll make your wildest dreams come true. Honestly, folks, it's wildlife. You don't want to see them. Because when you do, you're dead. You got no time to run. Uh, and then I always like to see those videos of the people like hanging out their car, out of their car with a, you know, with a bear or a, a bison standing right there. Anyway, makes you wonder how people survive, doesn't it? How do they live and survive through all of this? Well, you know, as we wrap up the show, we always like to talk about a hero. And we've got one um, that uh, we wanted to talk about. Our hero is Lenny Robinson. He is the Batman. Communities across the nation are celebrating the life of a great superhero. Lenny Robinson was just an average American who owned and operated his own commercial cleaning business. 
But a day soon came when Lenny decided he wanted to do more to give back to the world. He sold his cleaning business and he dedicated his life to helping others. He took on the identity of the famous superhero Batman using his own money. Robinson spent thousands each year on a costume and a Batmobile and traveling to hospitals across the nation visiting sick children. Just recently, the age of 51, sadly, Lenny was struck and killed by a motorist as he was pulled over to the side of the road, working, by the way, on his Batmobile. Many people across the nation are mourning the death of this great guy. Hope for Henry, an organization working with sick children, made this statement. Lenny B. Robinson was such a good friend to Hope for Henry, we lit up the bat signal whenever we had an event at a local hospital, and Lenny would jump in the Batmobile and respond immediately. He joined us for our most recent superhero celebration at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital, where he helped tell a story of hope for Henry, and it worked uh, improving the quality of life for the children that are fighting very serious illnesses. We will always love Lenny, and our hearts go out to his family and all who mourn his death. A father of the young boy that Robinson visited before the child's death from leukemia said, Lenny Robinson with my late son Josh, they're together again. Rest in peace. You were a great man, Lenny. Give Josh a hug for me. Lenny would also visit different schools teaching about bullying and the negative effects that can have on kids. The memory of Lenny Robinson will never be forgotten. Our thoughts and prayers go out to his family at this time. There he is, folks, a Townsend's hero, Lenny Robinson, Batman. Uh, He did it himself. And again, folks, you can do the same thing. Change the lives of the people you care about by just being there, spending the time, going out of your way to serve them. That's the show. We'll be back tomorrow. More ideas, more tools right here on the show to help you live longer and stronger. Stick with us, and until tomorrow, make it a great life.